People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to Greenwashed. You're with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. And it's good to be back and bring to you the headlines from another week of Greenwashing. And boy, do we have some humdingers this week. Nothing as big as your the smile on your face for that Indian cricket team <laughs> slaughtering New Zealand last the Wednesday night. You're still smiling about it. I, I told you, Don, I don't have many divided loyalties, but in some cases I do. This seems to be one of them. And my dad and I actually had a bet because he, he often ribs me when this is going on. Yeah, sorry about that I, one, but... Well, I, I just think there's something rigged in that game. I mean, that cricket seems so easy compared to uh, days of old. How can they hit 400 runs just like that? How can they hit 100 runs in the first 13 overs? You're supposed to be cautious. Cricket got quite, uh, you know, in quite sexy, I think, around the time when they bought 2020 and all mm. of those. And suddenly you had IPL leagues, uh, that's with the Indian Premier Leagues, and you had Bollywood actors fronting some of them. And suddenly with those 2021s, they were. In 20 overs, they were hitting, you know, 250 or something. And I remember being flabbergasted what's happening, but I enjoy the game now. They, I think they had a wider bat or something. I don't know. There's something different about it. I, and I know nothing about cricket. But is there any greenwashing involved in that, do you think? Is there anything? They used to be. They, they, I haven't heard those headlines for a while, but there used to be a lot of uh, stuff about betting going on. Oh. And then Pakistani players from the time of Imran Khan and others being investigated. Interesting deals in Dubai, but who would know? Oh, they obviously don't have money laundering rules in your area. <laughs> you the old country <laughs> like we have them here. <laughs> no, Don. Nowhere as transparent. Nowhere yeah. as transparent as New Zealanders. And so out here, we can actually see it, can't we? What's happening? Oh, we can. And before we carry on, we haven't even, as as we're recording this, is um, uh, a few days ago, uh, we don't have a prime minister that's um, in harness yet, in harness. We don't have a deputy prime minister. We don't have anything. And, you know, we've had about a month without our true government. 
the wheels haven't fallen off. They certainly haven't got any worse. Well, I suppose they couldn't get much worse, could they? They couldn't. Actually, I mean, how much more <laughs> worse can they get? I, I think we're pretty much scrapping the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, look, I think the first thing that, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about this today, um, some of the programs, but I think the Prime Minister-elect has to do a complete review of every government agency, every dollar that's spent in this country, and start clipping the wings of where it's expanded unnecessarily in recent years. Mm. Mm. Won't make people very happy to hear that, but... I think that's is, what's got to happen. Is it my cue to go into the diversity funding? I'll, I'll, I'll hang on that for a moment. I think there's a, a couple of great feedbacks we got uh, last week after our guests on. We had uh, the Dutch chemist and the, theologist Yap Hanikamp, and we also had Sean and Willem on speaking about uh, rising sea levels and the sheer insanity of what we are facing in terms of uh, science not adding up so there's one one of those feedbacks was more expansive so bear with me and this gentleman wrote in thank you both don and jeffrey for your impressive interview with sean rush and dr william delonghi on the subject of the sea level rise the evidence was well pitched and presented for a lay audience i just told there were plenty of councillors and council planners around the country listening in I've never completed a single paper on climate science, but I consider myself a scientist by a simple observation. We live on a farm in Hokianga, which could be considered a canary in the coal mine in terms of susceptibility to rising sea levels. It is mainly reclaimed swamp on, along the tidal river on the Hokianga Harbor. The reclamation, reclamation began around 100 years ago by building outer banks and internal drains with drain, rainwater into the river at low tide. When we first moved here 34 years ago, we noticed some of the lower sections of the outer bank would let water over during king tides. We built those bits up, maintained them, but did not raise the overall height of the banks. To be honest, I believe we would eventually need to be given predictions those days of 3 mm per year sea level rise. Well, my conclusion is that just didn't happen, and it isn't happening because I've not observed any discernible increase in water breaching the banks at king tide after over three decades here. We've been sold a lemon, and unfortunately, it's the younger generation who swallowed it for the most part, my own daughters included. But then they've been through university, and a climate science graduate had got to know more on the subject than a Hokianga farmer, right? I teased them about it good-naturedly, but they did vote for the Greens, and that was hard to swallow. But anyway, keep up the good work. Yeah, so that's a great... That was that was a good comment. Thank you for for that. It's interesting. There's plenty of those sorts of systems around New Zealand where um, the incoming tidal waters are stopped from going inland further by you know so inundating the the, the farmers' ditches and drains. Um, and they have, the, as he says, that or she was it. I can't think he. was that a, he. he. Um, they 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 have flaps to let the water out uh, when the tide's going out. So. Really cutting system. And yeah, if anyone's going to observe anything, you'd see it there. It's right there. And I've been to the Hokianga and it's a lovely place. And yep, if if, if she if they're not seeing any um, uh, noticeable sea level rise, even though we say there's 1.7 millimetres on average around the globe, you know, it's all about local compared to awesome. international. That's what we it's, learned last week, wasn't 
It's all about what you can see. Why would mm. I look for models when I can see something with my yeah. <laughs> with my eye and your predictions are not lining up with it? Mm. It's the same thing. We we you know we've had at times staff who possibly not focusing on what they've done and come up with some very odd pasture uh, grass growth measurements. And then you go and you say, well, I'll look with my eye meter and something doesn't add up here. Do you want to do another farm walk? So, you know, how do you deny what's right in front of your nose? Yeah, I mean, uh, measurement, they say you can't manage um, if you haven't measured. And, um, yeah, that sort of lines, they captivate people. But, you know, you would have thought that some integrity would be around these tight yeah. gauges. I mean, that's what we've got another guest coming up today who talks about the um, the best results are from tide gauges. And uh, yeah, they, you'd think we would trust them, but no, we've got to have these modelers that put the fear of the future into everyone. And um, of course, yeah, there's a whole lot of people feeding at that trough, you know? So yeah. anyway, what was the other feedback, Jasper? The other, let me just open it. And this is from Margaret. She wrote, I was listening to Jasper this morning and heard the scientist from Netherlands. I missed his name as I would like to read some of his papers. Margaret, the replay is up now, and that's Yap Hanekamp. Jaspreet repeated it. I was born 80 years ago in Amsterdam, Netherlands, which is below sea level, yet the house still stands there. So I know it is crap, and I tell all the young people so. They look at me like I'm crazy, sad, really. Thank you for your great station. Thank you, Margaret, for sending that in. And this one's, I don't have a name here, but... uh, Hi, just breathing down. Love your show. Thanks for all the work you put in to produce such an interesting and dynamic show. He goes on to say, RCR has wrecked my life. I hang around waiting for the good bits to end this morning so I could go and mow the grass, but it never does. They're all good bits. I so enjoyed your interview with the man from Netherlands. That's a completely different perspective on so many things and has made me think. I'll have to go back and listen again. Another gem. Thanks. Well done again. Yeah, it's that it, good to hear. It's lovely to hear. And interestingly, I've had um, cause to use his comments this week in meetings with other people, uh, including a, a um, levy organization chairman. And I said, I basically said, you have to be have an inquiring mind. You have to ask your staff, but is this true? Because staff are advising these people. And if they're not being asked to absolutely and emphatically show the truth, uh, there's a good chance we're being duped. Yes, there is. And just for the listener's benefit, I will repeat his name because a few people have mentioned they missed out uh, on his exact uh, details. So this is Dr. Yap, which is spelt as J-A-A-P, Hanekamp, H-A. N-E-K-A-M-P. And it also possibly doesn't have down with my dulcet Indian dialect here, trying to uh, pronounce a Dutch name, but we'll go with it. Uh, if you just Google Yap Hanikamp, his blog also comes up, which is just www.yaphanikamp.com. And it's very interesting to read uh, his body of work. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, you read his body of work and um, bring it back here. And as I've just said, you need to have an inquiring mind. I mean, for instance, we're being told right now to have these freshwater farm plans. Um, hopefully they're going to be kicked for touch. But have the inquiring mind, have the courage to say no, because you're not convinced of the need. You've been you've been in, encouraged to do something that is beyond 
anything that's common sense, you know, in a, in a common sense way necessary. So, yeah, I just think um, talking of common sense. Ah, talking of common sense. If your child, because this is for school children, if your child needs a sick note or you know a note for a sickie this week. There's a website that you can go to. And guess what? It is very inclusive. It doesn't discriminate. I popped in my name. I don't even listen in Australia. And the climate doctors certificate.com.au produced a quick, handy, a very handy certificate that says that I don't, I cannot make it to school today because of a climate health concern. My symptoms include stress from ongoing climate policy inaction, and so on and so forth. This is climatedoctorcertificate.com.au. And this came to my attention because The Guardian carried a headline that Australian school children to strike for climate action on Friday, the Friday just gone, backed by Climate Doctor's Note. And I said, yep, let's have a look at it. Yeah. Well, why didn't you sign it, Antonio Guterres? I think that would have been great. <laughs> UN Secretary General General looking for us for a, for a, throwing a sickie that would have been very funny. But how the dickens does this work? Maybe Rod Carr should start signing a few now. Mm, gosh, maybe. But you know, I saw the week before they talk about how there's forty six million three hundred thousand health professionals have come together uh, for just transition away from fossil fuel in the lead up to COP twenty eight. I mean, this stuff is, yeah, there's there's a lot of ramping up of enthusiasm around what's going to happen at COP28. You know what? I think it's going to be a damn squib because if you look at the Northern Hemisphere, uh, there's a lot of countries saying, we can't afford this net zero nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and here we are in New Zealand, net zero, NZ, NZ. So NZ to the power of two. I think we're, we're doing everything at a multiple more than others. So Let's hope we get um, our wings clipped as well. Look at Orsted, O-R-S-T-E-D. It's a big wind energy developer. It's writing off $4 billion due to cancellation of large offshore wind projects. There is more more of these uh, subsidy-funded energy, renewable energy providers that are now asking for restructuring, another term for bankruptcy bailout i don't know what they call them but yeah. all of this is happening Austin is danish hmm. and there's others following suit here yeah i gather um some of the uh, i think it's vesta is one of the main uh yeah they talk about the for uh, sell uh, look there's a name for the turbine head um and they make the turbines and themselves i think even they're struggling they're having the orders cancelled I have to say, I'm not convinced in New Zealand there's been any subsidy for wind turbines, but I could be wrong. I imagine they may have been given carbon credits or something if they didn't get direct um, taxpayer subsidy. But to my knowledge, at least in the ones around the South, I don't think there is any subsidy. Lower finance rates via banks? Goodness knows. And maybe through the companies that own them. Sustainability linked to Yes. All of that, Jasper, all of that. But in the US, without doubt, solar, wind, uh, and in Europe, subsidized. I mean, I remember there was a company called Solyndra in the States that got, I think, 500 million uh, sort of 
top up from the Obama administration, um, sort of helped the Obama administration get through California okay. And then about a couple of years later, they were in serious financial, well, you know, six years later. So they were in serious financial trouble. So, okay. Mm. Well, Don, you you brush my symptoms aside. I still want to go through the climate doctor's note and the oh, yes. climate doctors in Australia. Yes. So, my, so what, what is the symptoms that you've got, by the way? It says, because uh, I didn't have to put in any symptoms. I just went to climatedoctors.com.au, put in my name, and they printed this out for me. It says, elevated stress on seeing the impacts of climate emergency now in Australia and worldwide. Feelings of dis- despair due to the disregard of leaders who won't have to endure the future they leave behind. And then Dr. David Carroll, professor at the University of Melbourne, signs off. It is my recommendation that they, not me or her, just they, so just breathe, take a sick day to protest a sick planet. Well, guess what? Australia actually has an organization called Doctors for the Environment Australia. Hmm. Look them up at dubdubdub dea.org.au doctors mm. for the environment australia and they are submitting on everything from fracking to your cop28 fossil fuels to climate change net zero bills to native logging they doctors now have a position on native logging and so on and so forth and because they say human health depends on a healthy environment. So they have changed well, what the brief we would traditionally think is. That's, well, perhaps they haven't got a big enough job remit at the moment. You would think they have, but, um, yeah, they're looking for more work. They, they, I thought they talked about um, being overworked. It's a bit like lawyers uh, for climate action in New Zealand. You'd wonder why they need to exist. Um, perhaps they haven't got enough jobs, enough, enough work stream at the moment, enough contracts. No. So, but we 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 play um, play lightheartedly with this Jaspreet, but it is a sickness, isn't it, in itself? It's a this climate this climate this climate cult is just awful. It's insidious. There's no place that it is not touched. And now, uh, following up from uh, you know Groundswell's email last week, where they spoke about. Of course, the rising sea level issue and how it's been brought to their attention, the what's the sort of modeling carrying being carried out. They also spoke about Agri Zero, another mm. organization that has, uh, you know, it's virtually a collaboration of most of the big uh, co-ops, uh, primary industry co-ops in the country that's working to, I don't know what they're working towards, but to mitigate uh, climate Armageddon. Do you think they know what they're working towards? Because my gut feeling is they're struggling to define the plan. Um, you know, there's just not sort of clarity in their, their programs. I see they've got something like 57 in, in investments or programs in train, but only four active, I think it is at the moment. But, so yeah. <clears throat> there was, this was followed by Fonterra now finally declaring the scope three emissions targets. And mm. I sat through a Fonterra webinar and I wanted to know if they have done an economic modeling because when the Hibaka Ekanoa plan was uh, put forth, there was modeling of the sort of impact it would have on, say, sheep and beef and dairy and so on, so forth. So I rep- I was the first person in that webinar, I think, I was the 
first person to ask a question, it never got answered. All we were told throughout that 45 minutes, or was it an hour, was that the Northern Hemisphere has got some magic potion and its cows are going to have less methane. And yes, we we are the lowest carbon footprint, um, you know, dairy producing country on the planet, but we still must do better because the Northern Hemisphere is catching up. No one could quantify exactly how much. No one could tell us if they've done an economic impact of this massive, you know, demand on the shareholders of the co-op. And then it was followed um, towards the middle of last week, just gone, by Westpac now saying that its lending is going to depend upon emissions. I won't go into the details of emission intensity and so on. You know, Don and I try to keep this program more generic. But so now banks are following suit. And in that article, Westpac indicated that even though it might be the first bank, others are going to join soon enough because they're all part of the net zero banking alliance. Hmm. Isn't it perfect? You know, it's it's the whole, it's linked to finance. And I don't see anything it's, else that epitomizes that saying of follow the money as does hmm. the climate cult. Yeah, it's like they're ganging up, um, hunting as a pack. You know, it doesn't matter where you go, they're hunting together to this to this state um, of sort of pressurising um, the farmer. And it'll happen to homeowners and businesses as well in the end. But at the moment, let's talk, we talk about farming. The pressure is, um, well, let's just see how it does ha- uh, play out, whether there's going to be um, discounts um, given to, if you meet the credentials, or if there's um, tariffs or penalties if you don't on your interest rates. I, I, you know, if the banking sector was a little more competitive, I wouldn't have such a concern about this, but um, it is that they're hunting as a pack. None of them are willing to stand aside and say, we're not doing that. None of them are willing to say that. And it's the same, um, if you look at Fonterra, though, if you look at the milk industry, the dairy industry, some of the players are saying, we're not going to tick these boxes on scope three emissions or where, well, if they don't say that, they then if, if they are complying, they're not sort of saying like Fonterra is saying, um, Nestle wants all these credentials to be ticked off or else they won't buy a milk. Well, there's other players in New Zealand that supply Nestle who aren't ticking the boxes. So is there a price differential? I doubt it. Ah, uh, and. and- on the back of this came this article in the NZ Herald. This is paywall, so I'll I'll read a few bits of this. Bear with me. And this article was penned by Joe Kelly. Now, Joe Kelly is the chief executive of the New Zealand Centre for Sustainable Finance, which is also called Toitu Tahua. I probably massacred that term. Right. So it says, it, sustainable business and finance, a bold vision for our future. Opinion piece. Thanks for letting us know that. It's 2035. The world has bent the curve on emissions and is on track to avert the worst effects of climate change. Global collaboration and massive economic reforms over the last decade have underpinned climate policies that have become more stringent over time. This subdued physical risks unleashed innovation, creativity, tech. The global financial system remained relatively stable. Aotearoa New Zealand is thriving. 
We reflect on the extreme weather events of 2023 that cost us billions and brought climate change into stark focus. EV, public, private sectors got together, developed an ambitious, comprehensive framework. You know, it almost reads like a fairy tale. This one, when I'm reading this opinion piece, the Australians went first. 2nd November 2023, Australian Treasury released its first sustainable finance strategy. Alongside Singapore, which had already released that, and the three aligned to position the region as a robust market for investment. What did we do right, New Zealand? We took decisive action to avoid exponential future costs, built robust information system architecture. Yeah, all those uh, data centers that are going in. Co-invested into green infrastructure, sustainable land use, tech innovation. Then they talk of the international alignment. And Don and I, we've always spoken about this, you know, the global collaboration, the push from these <laughs> unelected UN, WEF, and so on. Aotearoa and New Zealand kept pace with global developments. Climate risk disclosures flowed. Beginning in 2023, the International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB to accountants, and the European Corporate Sustainable Reporting Directive drove the convergence of global metrics. So we were all heading in the same direction. We converged here in New Zealand. Then directors in New Zealand saw the writing on the wall. They accepted their businesses depend on nature and people and the stability of the planet much like these Australian climate doctors Don and I just spoke about. And this became a matter of fiduciary duty for directors. And good God, I could go on and on. It says the government avoided sending billions of dollars to other countries to meet its net nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement. We identified low emissions opportunities, so on and so forth. In 2021, the Sustainable Finance Forum identified 11 recommendations to develop a roadmap for a sustainable New Zealand. Gosh. Yeah. Well, Talk about a... crystal balls, Don. Talk about oh, crystal yeah. balls. Well, it's it's like a fairy tale. I mean, it's it's, it's what um, perhaps she wants to have happen. You know, that's uh, she won't be in that job in 2035 because this lady's quite a mobile sort of operator. In fact, this... I did... Yeah, I did a bit of history um, searching on on her. Um, she was appointed the CEO, um, interim CEO of the Centre for Sustainable Finance in July this year. But when you look back through her career, Joe Kelly she is, yeah, Joe Kelly. She's been working uh, at the forefront of sustainable business since two thousand and eight. Uh, it says in a, in a clip that I found in twenty eleven, she helped establish the B team a global group of business and political leaders working to redefine the culture of accountability in business. Headquartered in New York, the B team was co-founded by Sir Richard Branson and Jochen Zeitz. Joe was instrumental in establishing the B team's flagship initiatives. These included advocacy from global leaders for an ambitious Paris Agreement, mm -hmm. the launch of the Global Commission on Business and Sustainability at WEF in Davos and a program designed to better support and implement anti-corruption policy and tax practice. And of course, just so it all falls into place, she returned to New Zealand in 2015 and joined Deloitte New Zealand. And um, in that role, she participated in the technical working group of the Sustainable Finance Forum. And of course, she also established the Impact Accelerator Program, which connects impact businesses and invested to Deloitte's professional advisors. 
and it goes on and on. So, look, is is there an international club here? You think there's a club at play? I mean, you look at the partners of um, the Aotearoa Circle or or the partners of the Centre for Sustainable Finance. There has to be. There's a cosy party going on. They all, the roads lead to Rome or the UN in this case. If I go to B-Team, Ratawarji, Joe's last, uh, one of our ex-employers, they say that at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in 2015, we launched with a set of 10 challenges to provide a framework for Plan B. They chose the World Economic Forum for their launch. And uh, we have people who say the WEF and UN have nothing to do here. Nothing to see here. Yep, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, there's the, there's the usual suspects are all about. I, you know, is there something wrong with the way we've done business this century, last century? Uh, you know, over time, has everything been bad and rotten to the point that it's now just got to have this clean out and start again some other way? I don't think so. I think this is. These people are all about making money for themselves and their cronies. So, yeah, I think it's pay, it pays to have a cynical view, doesn't it? It does. As much as, as, much as it's, it sort of wears you down having one, I think you do have to do, and, and back to Yarp Honeycomb, but is this true? And in this case, is this needed? Is this real? Is it is it a desirable? Is this um, a value proposition? What yes. is this going to cost? And yes. what are the trade-offs here? Yeah. Yeah, when you see um, some of the partners uh, uh, in that AgriZero, for instance, are we back on that or we want to talk about sustainable finance? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Fonterra is a a prime player in a lot of these things uh, in the ATRO circle and the sustainable finance one. um, As does ANSCO, Silver Firms, most of them in different. Yeah. And, yeah, they all seem to write the same sort of language. And as we learned from um, Julianne Romanello, the there is a lexicon that these outfits talk and you know use. And of course, the nudge units from the Behavioural Insights team in the UK. It's it's all around us. And so I think we've been played. But there's a lot of people got very fat out of this, and uh, yeah, their consultancy business is thriving. Joe currently. Uh not uh, sits on she co-founded this initiative called the connective yes and if you look at the, the connective.nz what are they doing working in the solomon islands with local ngos experts in carbon markets to reclaim local economies smart climate smart forest to build value chains maori led circular housing and so on and so forth and who do they work with the next foundation Climate Connect Aotearoa, University of Otago, Auckland Climate Festival, Trade mm. and Enterprise, ECOS, all of the same. In fact, I mean, there's very little that's not touched on. And I will take the chance to swing a bit into the Ministry of uh, Ethnic Communities and their funding. I, uh, as people know, I don't have a life, and I went through their funding from 2016. I have sort of collated my own little master copy in Excel. Um, little. Ex- little. It's got <laughs> 1,552 columns, I think. You don't have to rub it in, Don, that I don't have a life. That's, <laughs> that's what I do for kicks here. 
So I, I searched for the word speech because I knew that the race relations awards that are going on, uh, and recently I've been hearing of them for the last 18 months now, to, uh, you know, one each over the last two years. I just went, went looking for them. So I searched for the word speech. And sure enough, so there is one that the Dutch week, the Dutch uh, national speech competition was funded by the Ministry of Ethnic uh, Communities in 2021. And just like the Dutch, very economic, less than $2,000, $1,960 done. But where's this other entries under the speech category? The Race Unity Speech Awards in 2021, they were funded one lot of 10,000 and another lot of 5,000. And this funding was applied by the Office of External Affairs. Moving on in 2022, this was taken over by the Baha'i Organization. The Race Unity Awards were funded $5,000. And later in 2023, a second tranche of $12,650. The Race Unity Awards. So this is what the Ministry of Ethnic Communities seems to think needs funding. And I go and look at raceunity.nz under the speech awards. And what are they giving awards for? And who are they giving awards to? So interestingly, this year out of 22 finalists, RNZ says seven of them, so nearly a third, were of Indian descent. And I'm just looking at the different things for which these this year, the various categories that they've given. So there is one for using Maori eloquently. There is one for using, I can't even pronounce this, what they're saying, for being carrying the connotations of being aspirational for the future and achieving great things. Some vision award with followed by a fruit salad of words, which to me, who and I am a relatively all right speaker of English, I don't even understand what this means. They are giving awards for the speaker use theory most eloquently and most frequently, effectively for a speaker who dem speaker who demonstrates Manaki Tanga through Nakao, compassion and aroha in overcoming prejudice and so on. Then there are lesson plans. So you would think these are just race relations award. There is lesson plans for teachers there on the same website, sample slides, subject opportunities and what they, they can talk about. So there is options given. It could be English. It could be Tireo Maori. There could even be some social studies themes that could be brought in to understand how social justice and human rights work in the local, national, and global context. The Race Unity Awards also has a Facebook presence. They have now begun having these along with a hui, which they say is going to somehow help. And it, it happens in MRI, and they're saying this hui is going to engage people and help younger ones to be listened to by influential New Zealanders. So, you know, promote their voices to people who matter. It's, and then their partners, mm. the New Zealand police, the Heidi Moani Charitable Trust, the Human Rights Foundation, Ministry for Ethnic Communities, of course, 
Speech New Zealand, the Children's Commissioner, the New Zealand Federation of Multicultural Councils, the Tyndall Foundation, and the UNESCO, the New Zealand National Commission for the UN. It used to be the United Nations uh, Emergency Fund or so on, and it is now transformed into something completely different. But yeah, there is nothing that right now does not, at this point, does not include the UN shape or form. Mm. So the UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Mm. That's a part sponsor of these. And to cut a long story short, I've been rambling about this. For me, this is the taxpayer funding the creation of cultural warriors. Yes. It's absolutely encouraging indoctrination um, of young minds. Um, and I can see why you're um, uh, you know, concerned about it. Uh, you and I have different backgrounds, but we live in the same place and we keep our private life to ourselves. We don't force our beliefs onto anybody else other than the political beliefs that uh, you know, <laughs> the, the government. But in terms of this sort of stuff, um, I just don't have any any need to sort of tell someone else they need to live this particular way. Um, and yet that's what it seems to be doing here. And, yeah, I, I don't know whether it can stand the test of time. Um, it has for for the moment. And, look, you, you take its genesis seems okay a way back. There was some sadness right at the start. Yeah. But it has grown like Topsy and it's grown into a beast that it shouldn't be. I, I don't even understand, Don. Uh, RNZ covered this year's Race Unity Awards. And uh, in that article, they said, last year's winner, Cheryl Chand of Solway College in Masterton, was named joint winner when she offered practical suggestions for dismantling racism, including abolishing academic streaming in schools. Yeah. So this is a 15-year-old who now believes yeah. that academic streaming uh, in schools is racist. But if you are, if your website is preparing, is handing you pre-paid, uh, pre-filled lesson plans for teachers, mm -hmm. and they are being encouraged to take children down this divisive path, I I am worried. Mm -hmm. And rightly so. Um... It's interesting, just it's an aside that um, late last week I was watching television in New Zealand news and there was Winston Peters sort of saying that he wants um, Maori to be subordinate to English on government buildings and government agencies. And there was three Maori people came on um, countering that and one was the leader of Te Party Maori and he was emphatic that that would start a bit of a problem and I'm understating what the inference mm -hmm. was made and then at the end of it um uh, there was another lady who said but um it's just it's just more of the same racism it's just all about racism you know and um you just get sick of this label and so i could be nasty i don't like being called a pakia because i actually don't want to be called a pakia don't want to be called that but people call european new zealanders pakia and you know people accept it but i've I don't use it as a term. I call call myself a Kiwi. Perhaps I shouldn't, because that's hypocritical, isn't it? I shouldn't use the term Kiwi. 
I, uh, you know, you can't tick any forms in New Zealand, John. And I, this is something that caught my attention right at the very beginning. It just says, because I would have thought until I got my residency into the citizenship, I was an Indian, I was on that passport. And later on, I became a Kiwi. You you know, you go through a citizenship ceremony. I would have thought that stands for something. And yet thereafter, you still have to identify yourself what you identify as. You know, there's a list of 10 categories. If you're something else, the other has to be defined. How dare you use the word Kiwi? How dare you use the flightless bird as as a, as a representation of yourself? And that's just like I've said, I shouldn't use that either because I'm I'm using someone else's word. You know, it's it's not our bird. It's not our language. It's not our this. It's not our. We but, shouldn't play games with it. Um, but critical uh, race theory, which is what's being pushed here, is is all about tearing society apart. I, I James hmm. Lindsay. Don and I have sometimes, towards you know earlier this year, I've often ended our mm. segments with a bit of a monologue from J- James Lindsay, and I completely agree with him. We're we're making the division, the separatism, far worse. Um, and is that because I'm a European descent type person, uh, you know, as opposed to the other side, if you want to say that? I don't think it's because of that. I just see this is so a divisive dist- and a distraction. Know, and a distraction from real achievement and having a great country to to uh, that that has harmony. Why wouldn't you want harmony? Why would you want to create disharmony? Um, I don't I don't buy into it. Especially when I was oh my my earlier years, you never felt this tension. You just never felt it. I so mean, this is, has been encouraged this century. If there is housing, good housing, good housing stock available, it's good for everyone, regardless of the ethnicity. The same goes for hospitals. The same goes mm. for schools. The same goes for whatever public infrastructure you can think of. But suddenly, we have been put in these boxes. We are supposed to look at the world through a lens of ethnicity, and then they talk about hosting these awards and you know paying for these kids to go there to dismantle racism. I would think that's our own goal. There seems like it. I want I want the funding of all these um, sort of ancillary agencies stopped and get the money back into a decent health system um, and and decent education system, a decent policing system. I want the basics done by the government. And the fir- the biggest thing in all of this is we need to get the respect genetic put back into all New Zealanders. You know, I think I've got respect, the ultimate respect for for fellow man um, until they cross me. And I do get a bit tense when that happens. But the disrespect for fellow human being is got out of control. And and what brought that home to me was I'm having my property violated twice in the last two years after 66 years living here. Something changed. What changed? It is the human beings that are being allowed to get away with disrespecting the property of others. Yeah. Yeah, mm. and that would be, yeah. But it's a, it's a very uh, disturbing, very uncomfortable when, you know, you your properties, we've had one theft at Gorge Road, and I remember that distinctly feeling uneasy. Mm. Mm. 
even though that happened in the shed that was a kilometer away from the you know the house where we lived in but yeah if you are feeling stressed though don't to lighten up there is always a climate doctors to give you a note out for a sick day they don't really seem to care you can just identify as a student you know? Yeah, but but I think from now on I'm going to call myself myself Antonio Gutierrez. No matter where I go in New Zealand, I'm going to be <laughs> Antonio Gutierrez, <laughs> and I'll get a free pass everywhere. Yep. So if anyone is is looking for a note or more on where the medical profession is going, dea.org.au Doctors for the Environment Australia. Tea dot org dot au is where you should head to mm. but i think at this stage we might bring on the first of our two guests today don and uh, would you introduce the two of them sure and uh, the first one's going to be peter foster a, a person i've only met this year but i've known of him for years um he's a scientist uh, he's got a bachelor of science but he's been a, a teacher uh he's done secondments down to antarctica um and he's traveled the world and um observed lots of different things and he's got a passionate interest in things climate and sea level so he's given a lot of submissions to his local councils in Dunedin and Otago regional councils and they're very intense submissions so we thought why not have him on to follow up Willem DeLonghi and Sean Rush last week and so yeah I hope he puts his take on it and it's of course very similar to to what the other two put up last week and then after that we're going to have a guy Mark Holman who gave really kind and and useful feedback a few weeks ago in fact probably a month ago and he started his life as a sawmilling family's father son of a sawmiller in Oakuni and he's had a whole life basically in the timber business in terms of either having a sawmill himself and and marketing um, building supplies right through to where he lives now in um, bay of plenty and he it's a great story he's got a lot of experience but he finishes it up with what happened to him and his family in the last three years and it puts a lump in your throat so yeah batten down the hatches for that Yes. And hopefully after that, if I can manage to wrangle Jill, she and I will bring up the rear. But uh, for now, please uh, stay with us and we'll be back in a minute with the first of our guests today. Thank you so much for joining Todd and me this morning. Our number for any feedback for texting is 2057 and our email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Just Breed Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Listeners, welcome back to Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed with John, Don and Jaspreet. And in concert with some recent interviews, we decided we needed to continue uh, down one pathway, and that is specifically around coastal um and management and sea level rise and the assertion that we've got to plan for the worst because um, it's just vital. All the models tell us so. So 
A couple of days ago, um, Jasper and I came upon a submission by Peter Foster, who has a degree in a master's degree in um, chemistry, bachelor's degree in chemistry um, and sciences. <laughs> Sorry, got that wrong, Peter. But he gave a submission in 2015 to the Otago Regional Council, in addition to the Dunedin City Council, and he's done more recent stuff with the Dunedin City Council. And, you know, clearly he has um, done his research. Um, aside from having a history in um, teaching, and I've admitted all that as well, um, he's he's travelled to Antarctica, he's observed a lot of stuff in his life, uh, travelled the world. He's a small deer farmer from um, um, sort of North Otago, you might say. And he's obviously analysed a lot of stuff in his life. And so when I read this submission, I thought, man, that's intense. We've got to get this guy on. So, Peter, welcome to RCR Greenwashed. And we'll, we'll open with this. You wrote on your first page that um, the Otago Regional Council had ignored um, the credentials and submissions of, of some pretty key people, but they took notice in the past of, for instance, Dr. Renwick, Dr. Wright, uh, uh, Dr. Wright, that's Jan Wright, and Pro Professor P Peter Gluckman, but ignored the 600-odd technical papers of Nils Morner, Professor Willem DeLong, who we had on last week, Longy, and Professor Bob Carter, who's well-known to us. So what do you think's going on there where very technical people and their and their output is ignored by um the the administrators of these sort of policies in New Zealand. And welcome to Greenwashed anyway. Good oh, to have you on. Thank you. <laughs> right. Well I uh, I think it's a case of the councillors and councils being overawed by the ministry and those sort of authoritative bodies and unwilling to look at any evidence outside of what those bodies present to them. So uh, the councils are all based on the climate models, and the climate models are all uh, based on a scenario called RCP 8.5, which Willem discussed with you uh, previously. Now, those climate models, they are... They are very, um, they don't represent reality. They're an attempt by scientists to make a climate model in which they model all the factors and come out with some outcomes. At the moment, they are not in any stage fit to, to project the future. And in fact, what factors they have come out with for future are simply not reflected in reality. So, there is a disconnect between actual data as it's measured on Earth and the, what the climate models predict. On the other hand, we have the actual data of tide gauges. Uh, and the tide gauges are our best gauge as to what's happening locally. Now, tide gauge measures both the sea level rise and the subsidence or uplift of the land. So if we take Dunedin, for example, Dunedin has a, a sea level rise on its gauge of 1.36 millimetres a year. 
half of that, about 0.7 millimetres of that, is due to subsidence. So the land is dropping down. So consequently, the sea level is rising up. And the other half is, is due to the sea level rise itself. Now, we can, we can look at the tide gauge record over 150 years, and we can see that it rises and falls on a 50-year cycle. And so uh, what you've got to do is draw a line through the middle of that rise and fall to get your average sea level rise. If you, what the sea level project people have done is two things. The first is they have started off taking their, their mean line through the middle of the ups and downs, but then they run it through the top end, which currently it's approaching the crest of that cyclic movement. So when you do that, of course, then you claim that you've got an acceleration, which you haven't if you take the full cycles into account. The second thing that the Sea Rise, Rise Project does is it uses the eustatic sea level, the global sea level uh, rise uh, of the central oceans, if you like. Now, that, that they measure from satellites. And the, the, uh, the, there's a problem with the satellite measurement of sea level, and that is this, that all around the world, all the tide gauges, show an average after uh, subsidence or uplift has been removed, they show an average of one, about one and a half millimetres a year sea level rise. The satellites come out with a measurement of 3.2 or 3.3 millimetres a year. So how can the middle of the oceans be rising at 3.2 millimetres a year, but none of this is ever reflected against the coastlines? Now, water tends to level itself out. Unless you believe it humps in the middle, then something is wrong. One of those measurements is wrong. And I'll put my money on the one which is where my feet get wet, which is where the tide gauges are. Now, a, a, um, a NASA scientist uh, who's now who's deceased, uh, Tom Weismuller, did an analysis of the satellite project and came to the conclusion that they had made an arithmetic error. They had added two things together, but not divided by two. Hmm. And that that would be supported because there's another satellite which measures sea levels, which I think is no longer operational, but it was for about 20 years. And that was the European Envirosat satellite. Now, the Envirosat satellite was about 480 kilometres above the surface of the Earth. And it was very, very accurate. It was accurate to sub-millimeter levels. Now, that's quite an act because you've got to balance the difference of waves and all other things and avoid islands and ships and all that sort of thing. But theirs was very accurate. And it showed a sea level rise of, uh, from memory, something like about 0.32 millimeters a year. Uh, and so you compare that with the American Topex. Now, the, the, the start with Topex it had three I think now four satellites measuring sea levels. There was a Topex, and it was followed by Jason 1, Jason 2, and Poseidon, I think the other last one is. But those satellites in their initial analyses showed a sea level rise of about a millimetre a year. But where do they get the 3.2? 
well, they manipulate the data and they think the ocean bottoms have increased in size. And therefore, if the ocean bottoms didn't increase in size, then the sea level would be higher, wouldn't it? So they start doing all these sort of calculations and come out with a 3.2 or 3.3. But that is utterly meaningless. But to come back to the Sea Rise project, they use this. And what they do, for the sake of like of Dunedin, they take uh, the subsidence as 0.7 millimetres, and they then add to that the static sea level rise, 3.3 millimetres, say. So we get four millimetres a year, according to the sea rise. But that ignores the fact that the, the, the targo tide gauge already takes into account the sea level rise and the subsidence, and it's only showing 1.3. So they come out with a 1.36. So they come out with a, 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 a sea level rise, which was three times the actual sea level rise. So when local bodies start taking that sort of rubbish into account, then they get it wrong. The scientific and, sorry, and and so how you know they get it wrong, and it it's a significant cost to ratepayers and taxpayers when they get these policies wrong. But it does feed oh, into yes. a whole lot of um a whole lot more modelling and a whole lot more engineers and a whole lot more consultants and a a whole lot more of everything. So it sort of stimulates a certain certain sectors, but at significant cost. Um, how long you know why have we allowed this stuff, or why do it's probably a tall question, bit of a long question or a tall question to ask. How is it that people that are really intelligent people can continue living this sort of stuff uh, and put their point of view across um, when they know it's dishonest? They must know it's dishonestly founded. The stuff, yeah, you know, the, the, yes, the so stuff I, when they when they overaccentuate. <clears throat> I mean, when they when they overaccentuate. Um, uh, the numbers. Well, I think a lot of it, is, it comes down to groupthink. Among the scientists aligned to the IPCC and the, the bureaucrats who want to improve their jobs, I suppose, um, there is a, a ready acceptance of this. And the attitude uh, is that anyone who says something different is clearly wrong. They're off their trolley. And this is the danger of the the climate, uh, the, the cancel culture, which we have today in the, the woke culture, that people are afraid of speaking out if they could be labelled something like a climate denier or a racist or whatever. You know, we have so much facets in our society today where people's opinions are put down mm. uh, and not listened to. And I have had discussions with certain editors at the Targo Daily Times who uh, would not even consider the points I was making. I, I was a denier and anything I said was wrong. And it didn't matter how much evidence was presented, they weren't, weren't interested. Yeah. And that's that's what you're fighting against. That That is what you're fighting against. And, you know, that's where we are. We are sort of done, and I do this show, as do many others, trying to raise awareness. But I don't think we did justice to your work that you presented to in your submission to the Otago Regional Council, Peter, in 2015. We called it a submission, but it was 111 pages. I have read books. I've read books which are shorter than that. Now, the, please, please tell me, and I'm I'm curious because you mentioned to Don and me at the beginning, just before we went live here, 
that you have recently also gone to the Dunedin Council. But what sort of response did you get to this 111-page tome in 2015 from the Otago Regional Council? What reaction did you get? Did they well, question I, you? I, yeah, yes, I did. I, I made a presentation mm-hmm. and they listened very politely and I can't remember whether they asked any questions or not, but um, when I finished it was, um, you know, I mean, of those those hundred and whatever fifteen pages, uh, much of that was in the report from from uh, uh, Carter and uh, Delonghi and and yeah and uh, more Axel Warner. Uh, that was there, but their 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 report was very very appropriate uh, because uh, it was about coastal towns on New South Wales, but. Exactly the same criteria apply as here, and they don't. They don't really follow up, do they? You don't get no. No, that I doubt they, Even if it I is, you know, a criticism. Read. Yeah, even if it's actually getting back to you and saying, right, we don't agree with point this, 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 and we found holes and this, 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 and that's why we don't agree with your conclusions. I don't think you will really get a response that's reflective of the amount of effort that's gone into putting in a 111-page submission, Peter. No. Oh, no. No. And uh, how many people actually read it, I wouldn't have a clue. Probably very few. So just going back to um, trying to understand uh, for our listeners why CO2, uh, which is – yeah, they use CO2 and they they use representation concentration pathways now, uh, an additional concept called um, shared socio-economic pathways. Um, and um, But they use CO2 as the basis for that and it then links into sea level rise. How can that be? I mean, it's, it's a pretty basic question, I know, and I know the answer, but um, can you explain it perhaps clearly to, to listeners why there's any well, relevance in that? The, the relevance comes because they're, climate models are predicated on CO2. Mm. And if the climate models give a temperature rise, then that temperature rise will lead to more melting ice. It will lead to thermal expansion of the ocean. And and there you get your effect. Mm. The problem is that there is actually no evidence whatsoever that carbon dioxide drives climate. We go right back to 1995, and the scientists who were, wrote the second assessment report for the IPCC, and they also wrote the draft for the summary for policymakers. Now, the science report is written by the scientists, but the summary for policymakers is a political document. And so they wrote, they write a draft for the for the governments to consider. Yeah, for the summary for policymakers, the UN gets all 194 countries together and they go through the draft line by line and they all have to agree. So they've all got ownership of the report and it gets changed by political considerations. However, in this case, before it went to those nations, the report had about 15 statements, things like um, there was no evidence uh, that CO2 was having any effect on climate, that if it was having an effect, we don't know enough about natural climate variation to tell the difference, and so on. There are about 15 statements of that long, that ilk. 
they all got deleted from the draft by the leading uh, author of the time, a guy being centre. Uh, and he replaced those with one statement saying that uh, there was a discernible effect from CO2 on climate. And that was the beginning of the, the end, if you like. <laughs> yeah. I know. And Don, you know, we've often spoken about bigger consultants and those involved in many of these reports. Now, I looked up Dunedin and Otago Regional Council. They commissioned reports from Golder, G-O-L-D-E-R, Golder Associates, these guys uh, to for mitigation for Dunedin when sea levels yes. rise. And according to some experts, by 2035, Dunedin, parts of it will be underwater. And their report, the Golder Associates, the report, they take case studies from New Orleans, from Holland and others. And I just Googled Golder and guess what? It's been purchased by WSP. So another of these uh, modeling companies, another one of these, you know, so-called expert advisees has been purchased by one of the world's biggest consultants, WSP, a Canadian firm that's pretty much omnipresent across all parts of New Zealand. It's yes. amazing how yeah. that happened. And then that's again, like you were talking about UN, that's again consensus building because you have all these smaller companies being bought out, taken over. Yes, and all with the same philosophy to, yep. to push. But by pushing this uh, view that climate change is a disaster for the world, they are ensuring that they get more employment, aren't they? Totally. So, yeah. And they say in their, you know, in their limitations of their report, there is no warranty included and any opinion expressed or implied that will exactly conform to the assessments con uh, contained in this document. This sort of paper yeah. is not worth, you know, anything. But yet no. we are making significant decisions about people's lives, their lifestyles, everything based on these. Well, that's right. We're well, just coming back to your link between carbon dioxide and, and sea level rise. Mm -hmm. I've had an interesting email exchange with James Rennick over the last uh, four or five months. And I started off by saying to him, now, if carbon dioxide was driving climate change, as we're told, mm -hmm. then we should see carbon dioxide rising ahead of any climate warming, and we should see it falling ahead of any cooling. But if we go back in history, nowhere in the last 600 million years has carbon dioxide ever preceded a change in climate. And James Rennick wrote back and said, well, it could. And I wrote back <laughs> and said, well, it doesn't matter if it could. It hasn't. Can you give me an example? And he couldn't. And then he said, oh, but there are a whole lot of other factors that drive climate. Yes. I said, yes, we know that. But you're okay. blaming carbon dioxide. Oh. And then... I said to him, uh, now it's been shown that the heat transfer, because we've now got these Argo boys that float around the ocean, there's about 4,000 of them, and every 10 days they pop down to two kilometres and gradually rise up, measure the, the temperature and the salinity and, and everything on the way up. And they radio that to a base and then and carry on for go park themselves a kilometre down for 10 days. So we have a lot of information now that we never had before. And what becomes apparent out of that information and our uh, satellite monitoring of sea surface temperature and the like is that the, the flow of heat goes from the sea surface. It warms first. 
that's because it's warmed by the sun whenever there's not much cloud around. So the temperature goes from the sea surface to the atmosphere, and that takes about two months. And it goes to the deeper oceans, and that takes, I think, about 11 months. And so that, that I said to her, how can, how can, if we got that heat flow, how can uh, the, the, the carbon dioxide be the culprit? Because carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere, not, not the sea surface. So Dr. Rennick writes back and he says, oh, it's back radiation from the atmosphere that warms the ocean. So through uh, Dr. Tom Sheehan and a colleague of his, um, Dr. Cork Hayden, who's the expert in this field, so I sent this response. And they wrote back and said, well, the photon path length, that's the, the distance that a photon of infrared travels uh, before it hits a molecule, like carbon dioxide. So if we take the, the wavelength of carbon dioxide, radiates, is only 20 centimetres. And I said, what about for water and methane? And he said, well, for methane, uh, a, a photon at 7.65 levels 250 metres before, on average, it hits a methane. And what about water? Oh, well, in the tropics, it'll be a millimetre or less, and our latitude about four millimetres. <laughs> so all the radiation coming off the Earth is absorbed by water within a few millimetres of the ground or the sea or whatever. And it, but it has to go 250 metres to hit a methane <laughs> or 20 centimetres to hit a carbon dioxide. So that means that, that only molecules radiating in the atmosphere less than a few millimetres off the surface of the sea and possibly warm the sea. Mm. So the back radiation is a nonsense. So, um, you know, that's just a, another another plank in the, the thing that shows that carbon dioxide is not the driver of climate change. There are a whole lot more, but we... <laughs> and, and it is almost like don't we don't even begin from that. It's almost an assumption that this is a given... Every time you hear these discussions, be it on whatever forum, government, or you know, even chatting with someone, or a, suddenly yet another retailer popping up something, we are offsetting. I mean, I have how many times has it happened to me? I purchased something online, I'm popping it in yeah. my shopping cart, I'm about to check out, and it says carbon neutral packaging, and there I am, done out. Yeah. I'm not buying that anymore. <laughs> of course, it, it and it's it saved me money plenty of times, but that, that's a level of stupidity we've come to because. No one questions the very basic premise. It's like, you know, the Pied oh, Piper. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, but how we see the IPCC's mandate is to show that humans cause warming. Hmm. And just it's humans. Not, their, their, their mandate is not to investigate the causes of climate change. Their mandate is to show that, that humans cause human activity causes climate change. So they ignore all the evidence to the contrary. And there are about 500 papers published a year which contradict the claims of the IPCC, but they're totally ignored. And in particular, there's a huge body of research on the, on the role of, um, uh, of the sun and of galactic cosmic rays 
which is just not even mentioned. They write it off saying the variation in solar activity is only about 0.1, so therefore it can't amount to much. So how do these expert reviewers at the um, IPCC reporting mechanisms, um, how do they get so uh, um, perhaps their output is a little skewed away from what you're talking about? Uh, Even though we know expert reviewers, you and I know people who have been expert reviewers, we know what they've put in, but their, their input has been discounted or disregarded. So... How is it that these people on effectively what I would say there's the other side of the ledger, the people that want to um, keep the um, uh, mythology going, uh, get all the airtime? How is it that they get all the airtime and real decent people and people that want honesty and integrity and sciences um, seem to get dismissed, banished? Well, I think it's a, a case of something dramatic sells newspapers. And... Uh, they're not interested in hey ho hum. It's uh, nothing wrong with the world. Just carry on. Mm. They're quite happy to scare the hell out of children, make them think they got no future. They I are. mean, the, the classic example of that is the refusal, is the, this climate emergency, the refusal to look at the actual data, which shows no climate emergency. But people have been sucked into this, and and they will spout it off as if it was real, but they've never ever looked at the actual data yeah. so it's a, it's interesting we show we call this show greenwashed and when we first started this i was a bit concerned actually with the name greenwashed because i didn't see enough um of the sort of greenwashing opportunity that uh other people were seeing except for climate change and to be fair our program is significantly dominated by discussion on climate change. Um, yes, and I'm, I'm sure our producers tear their hair out because we're constantly on this thing. But is the, it is the ultimate, ultimate greenwashing that's occurring all around the world today. It is just all pervasive. It's in everything we do. And how did it get to be so all pervasive? I'm damned if I know. Done money. Oh, well, you know, I just noticed yesterday or this morning was that Westpac Bank has decided they're only going to lend money to farmers who can show they're going to reduce methane by 9% or something rather. In fact, there's no mechanism for doing that other than killing your animals. It's it's a measure of the stupidity where we've got to. Well, and in fact, uh, we're going to get you back to talk about that because I know this is one of your hobby horses as well. And of course, um, recently I watched another webinar uh, with Dr. William Van Weingarten talking about um, the most uh, embellished scenario he could make up for the effect of methane. And he was addressing some Irish farmers and and Irish organisations. And no matter how you do it, uh, you talk about it's all human-induced, it's all uh, in clear skies, it's not in an almost, I'm not sure whether he said it was the mixed atmosphere, I think he did talk about that, but in the end, methane, uh, we're talking, listeners, thousandth or ten thousandth of a degree per century from the ruminant animals of New Zealand for its warming their warming effect. So we've been sold an absolute pup, and you've just bought into or you know bought into reading that paper that uh, all of a sudden Westpac's going to put these credentials on farmers, and so is Fonterra. They haven't a hope in hell of justifying this uh, unless they actually tell lies. And that's, that's right. the problem. And that's I would the put problem. nothing beyond them. But 
another thing I hope that listeners get to don uh, appreciate that you know when we began talking about this earlier this year, it's, it's the years winding down to a close. We were talking more about farming, and we talk about that most of the time. Don and I are both far in in farming. But it is now, as Peter's talking, it is now affecting the urban population, the mm. sea level rise and the associated issues of managed retreat and everything else and the cost for mitigation. It's going to be all going to be added to urban ratepayers' bills. This That's is right. no longer this greenwashing, this ultimate greenwashing. I like the word, Don, you used pathology. I'm going to start calling it climate mythology instead of I still use those words for teaching kids Roman and Greek mythology. This climate mythology is coming home now for yes. our urban people as well. It is no longer just a rural issue. And that's probably the oh, biggest no. yeah, issue. No, now. it's not. It's not. But the, the, you get this movement like you must eat less meat and that sort of thing. And, and that mm. itself will impact seriously on farming. But on the other side of the coin, there is a ray of hope that has appeared in the last year, I suppose. And that is that in Europe and in England, they're suddenly discovering that the cost is far yeah. too high. Yes. And they're having to call back on their policies. And bit by bit, uh, the Britain has now allowed uh, drilling for oil again in the, in the North Sea. And uh, they're going back to some cases to coal uh, because they realise that that our society is totally dependent on energy. Yep. And if you have if you have unreliable means of energy like wind and solar, uh, it doesn't cut the mix and you're going to run out. No. And they know that there will be a huge public backlash when the power gets turned off. Exactly. And they're how starting of, to understand that. Very how many of us learners, but, will hmm. do, you know, are happy to change our lifestyles? The Guardian oh, right. recently carried an article stating that, and I'll quote, about 2 million UK households have been forced to turn off their fridge or freezer to save money as they continue to struggle with what poverty campaigners call a frightening level of hardship. I call yes. it a very deliberate decimation of, you know, they, people's they lives, a, earnings. This is being done deliberately. And uh, how yes. Well, uh, I think, I mean, Germany is uh, losing its industry at a very, very high rate at the moment. Mm. And that's going to affect the whole of Germany because that's their income. That's the livelihood of the people that is being destroyed because these companies can no longer compete internationally uh, by Germany. And, of course, China is the winner in all of that aspect. But I just want to come back to um, something we are talking about before with the sea level rise. And I presented the DCC with a graph of uh, sea level rises from around New Zealand. And they are all absolutely linear mm. at this about one and a half millimetres a year increase. And all of New Zealand's sea level, in fact, all around the world, sea level rise is linear, straight line. And on top of that graph, I drew a graph of carbon dioxide rising. Now, the carbon dioxide is sort of goes up slightly until about 1950, and then it turns and goes up sharply. Uh, so it, it reaches for the sky while the sea level rise just trickles along at its little level down below. Yeah. And one has to ask the question, 
if carbon dioxide is responsible for for warming and for sea level rise, then why has there been no response from sea level in 70 years? (laughs) One would expect, looking at that comparison of those two graphs, one would expect to have seen the sea level start to edge upwards, uh, you know, after the 1950s. And here we are in 2020, and it's still trucking along Hmm. at the same level straight line that it has for the last 100 years yep. and the 100 years before that and the 100 years before that. So, look, that's a good um, good ending uh, spot, Peter. Um, interestingly, after ev- the guests we've had and you as well, there's a common theme. Please, listeners, um, if you're a ratepayer or a taxpayer, make sure you sit on your politician's neck or your local councillor's neck and say, stop this nonsense. You know, I don't want to be responsible for saying the wrong thing, but clearly I can assimilate and assess what um, people with common sense are presenting. And the common sense says uh, there's not a lot. You you do have to be mindful of your coastal management. There is um, reasons to to show concerns in some area, but nothing major required here. So just stop the nonsense. Stop putting the fear of the future into your ratepayers, the bills against your ratepayers and taxpayers, and lighten up a bit. But So, Peter, we'll, we'll draw this to a conclusion, but we do want to have you back to talk about not only the methane stuff that I know you're big on, um, but also your experiences in Antarctica, which I'm sure uh, were a highlight in your, your earlier oh, yeah. years in life. Hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, so great having you on RCR Greenwash today, and uh, we'll see you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Just Breed Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners. It's great to have your company uh, again today. Um, and it's always our duty to suggest feedback on 2057 or realitycheck.radio at uh, inbox. Oh, what, I've forgotten it all of a sudden. Uh, you'll correct me, Jasper. I, I will inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Though in <laughs> Guys, the topsy-turvy world, Don. Nothing. I stuffed that up. Without it right <laughs> in front of me, it just shows me my memory is hopeless, like a sieve. And so <laughs> why why talking about feedback? Um, it's why we have our guest today, actually. We got some very good feedback by a guy, Mark Holman, a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, hmm, I think I'll give this guy a call. And I learned that he has um, timber and sawdust in his boots, or just timber in his veins, and as he says, sawdust in his boots. So I thought, yeah, but like me, perhaps. But when I talked to him, it was clearly a whole lot more intensive than me. So um, today we have Mark Holman. He's living in Papamoa, and he has a long and varied history in the, or many industries, but mainly in the timber industry and forestry. So welcome, Mark, and welcome to Greenwashed. Tell me, where did all this start for you? Central North Island, I think. Yes, no, that's correct. Uh, hi, Don and Jaspreet. Um, yeah, and I was uh, born and raised in Awakuni in Central North Island, and my uh, dad was a logger in the Karioi Forest. And, um, um, yeah, from age 10, you know, the the times when uh, kids actually went to work with their parents and so, uh, yeah, no PlayStation. I, I had real toys like bulldozers and diggers and trucks uh, to, to play with, you know, the big boys' sandpit. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a really good upbringing. And um, 
but we we shifted in 1973 from Oakuni uh, to uh, uh, quite a juxtaposed uh, location, which is the Bay of Islands. And um, Dad got a contract in the Waitangi Forest. And, um, yes, and I went to school at Bay of Islands College and, um, yeah, had a, had a real happy time there. Uh, but all of my spare time was with Dad uh, helping out uh, either in the bush or in the workshop fixing machinery and chainsaws and ra-di-ra. And so when I, when I left school, I, I just naturally migrated into the family business and there I stayed for um, 16, 17 years until uh, we sold the business in, um, in the early 90s. At that point, um, I, I went and joined uh, a, an American company that had purchased some of the um, state forests in New Zealand, uh, what was then ITT Ryanair, which is now Matariki Ryanair or Ryanair Matariki or something like that. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I fulfilled a, quite an interesting role there of supervising uh, 20 harvesting crews and half a dozen um, log transport crews. And... Um, uh, then I got involved with them into buying private woodlots, uh, be they be from farmers or private foresters, and um, yeah, so uh, that that was that was a great run until the company decided to restructure, which um, uh, gave me the opportunity to, to go out and buy timber on my own account and and act for sawmills as their buying agent and, and organising harvesting and marketing of um, uh, log products around the North Island. And, um, but that, that had a downside because uh, I got involved in a take or pay situation and um, uh, the, uh, the take wasn't looking particularly good, so uh, I, I had to find an alternative to it, which meant I ended up... Uh, getting a sawn um, uh, market in Australia for the timber, um, and then I needed to convince a sawmill to produce it for me, and I went into a deal where I actually leased a sawmill, um, and that, uh, in the 10,000 problems that you could have in a sawmill, which I believe you understand a fair bit about that, Don, and you've still got all 10 fingers and so have I, so that's always a good start. Um, the, um, uh, the, the final blow was uh, that I, I got my first three export shipments on three consecutive vessels that sailed across the Tasman and sailed straight into a 14 or 15-week wharfie strike in Sydney. Wow. And, um, you know, literally every exporting sawmill in New Zealand had um, significant quantities of timber on those vessels. And basically the banks went through and picked the winners and the losers because I was just a startup and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I was the biggest loser. <laughs> well, probably wasn't the biggest loser, but I definitely ended up losing it. So... Um, from, from there, uh, I, I managed to wiggle my way into a, a role with a uh, one of the five Japanese trading houses, Sumitomo Corporation, and um, I was able to facilitate the uh, trading of New Zealand sawn timber products uh, around the Pacific Rim. 
yeah so 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 that's a good point to jump in there's a lot of discussion in the last you know as long as i can remember really about how new zealand just exports these logs unprocessed um or as chips uh, into uh asian countries and we don't do um any of processing in new zealand what's the what was the state then clearly you were exporting sawn timber so there was there was some processing um what is why did that status seem to diminish over the last sort of 20 years? And what was it that has basically killed off the small sawmills in this country? Um, it was a number of uh, things in there that the big factor is foreign exchange. Um, you know, we need a we need a robust exchange rate uh, across the Tasman because it's the most expensive piece of water in the world to put freight across. Uh, and also to the United States, those um, the the volumes into Asia of sawn timber are infinitesimally low, and and that that's sort of a, a back to front trade barrier really uh, yeah. that they're protecting their own labour markets, um, uh, and we we don't help ourselves in the the way we market our logs anyway because um, I'm currently fulfilling a, a phytosanitary role at the port of Tauranga for logs and sawn timber. And, um, you know, I, I was inspecting pruned logs today uh, that were as black as a pair of my school shoes, you know. And, uh, you know, so what, what is the what is the benefit of, of going through a 28-, 30-year regime of pruning and thinning to grow a, a premium pruned butt to let it sit for, you know, mm. 8 to 12 weeks on the port before it then has six weeks to sail up to um, China and then have goodness knows how many more, you know, it could they could be six, seven months old, maybe even more, you know. So, um, yeah, we... In, in the timber industry, I think that we have been trapped into that cycle that the early meat industry was, and we haven't actually worked out how to um, get the value proposition out of the raw product. And uh, exporting the raw product is just, it's easy, you know? And... Um, but what I what I've seen in um, recent months um, down at the port here is that the whole move from the style of logging that happened uh, when I was logging uh, in my prime, uh, which was a very um, manual process with chainsaws and you know men on uh, and women on skids cutting up logs, everything's now done by processes. Um, and, um, you know, you're putting uh, $1.2, $1.3 million into a processor. You need to poke the volume through. And uh, therefore, what I'm seeing is that the quality of logs are generally going down and down as as to the specifications, you know. so it, It's interesting, listeners. One of the hardest jobs, I've and I've been around some hard jobs, and I think I've done a few myself, one of the hardest, toughest jobs I've ever seen done was skidder operators, which is uh, the machines that tow logs up or across the terrain to, uh, to a site to be loaded. Um, 
where there was guys towing heavy wire ropes running through knee-deep mud, um, <laughs> pulling these wire ropes. I've never seen people um, work day in, day out doing that. And they start at four in the morning, five in the morning and go till, till dark. And a heck of a lot of those people ended up going broke because of the boom-bust cycle of logging and and harvesting so um and, and processing so you know I'm, I'm concerned that on one hand new zealand sort of wants us to do all this value add locally but we've got cost structures that just seem to get in the way and we've got rules and regulations in farming sense that happens and i think it's probably happened in this in the timber industry as well would that be right or um, to a to a certain degree, but um, you know the the earlier discussion that you and I had uh, about um, um, changes in the nineteen eighties with Rogernomics, um, uh, to me is is a fundamental that for the greater part of the volume that's being exported from New Zealand, uh, that the the wood product does not belong to New Zealand or New Zealanders. Mm. Um, you know, we have uh, sold, uh, you know, the, the stumpage rights to offshore entities and um, sure, they, uh, they they may pay or their staff may pay PAYE and there's a bit of GST slopping mm. around here mm. and there. But basically every ship that leaves New Zealand with logs on is exporting profits that could have otherwise stayed here if there was a higher level of ownership of the base resource um, uh, still here in New Zealand. And and I think that that in itself is a fundamental problem. We've, we've got about 27 million annual harvest is about seven and a half is, or about, well, let's, let's make the numbers easy, about seven million domestic consumption of logs and 20 million exported. Well, if, if it's um, 20 million times $40, say, average return to stump, uh, what's that, 800 million? Is that, is that, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So it's nearly a billion. So, so you know, that's, that's a lot of extra money that could be washing around some of it in state-owned entities or whatever, um, or uh, into, you know, privately New Zealand-owned, forest companies but you know we've we've lost those resources um for the most part to overseas entities so. mm. and my concern has been um, a lot of people want a low you know a, a low cross rate currency um foreign exchange rate uh, as that's that's the thing that helps um exporters survive well i would suggest that the way new zealander could could do more of that further processing and do more of it, have more ownership locally, is if we had a stronger currency. And so I sort of have a belief that's different to most New Zealand farmers or exporters. Uh, a high currency is something that we have benefited from in recent years, and sadly we're now down to a, a weak currency again, and I see it all going through the same same old cycle. It's interesting, I'm really proud that you've um, I've sold my trees into mainly local consumption and sawmilling. So I sort of feel quite good about that. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So just tell me, yeah, moving on, I mean, it's it's a it's a horrible story when you look at the the sawmills that closed and and the people that lost their lost lost their family business or their livelihood. But now we've got a thing called the emissions trading 
scheme, and I call it a thing because I have not much time for it, but what's that going to do to the New Zealand forestry landscape in terms of um, logs coming in sort of 10, 20, 30 years' time? Well, it, it, it's actually an odd mix because, um, you know, we, a few months ago, just prior to Gabriel, we went down to the Hawke's Bay and I was horrified to see some beautiful hill country farmland all covered with dots with uh, pine trees planted in. Nobody loves pine trees and the benefit that they bring to this country more than I do. But, you know, I, I don't see the necessity for that type of carbon farming uh, and the fact that a lot of these carbon farming uh, farms are not ever intended to be harvested, you know, and that that in itself is going to be an enormous environmental um, disaster that probably uh, my grandkids and your grandkids will be scratching their heads saying, what, what the hell were those people thinking about back then, you know? Bye. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that the whole carbon, the emissions trading thing is just a can full of worms and the sooner it gets run through the shredder like so many other pieces of legislation, the better. I don't think that they're going to be finishing up so soon. Now we're, uh, I live Mark, surrounded by pines on three sides, probably another one soon if if the way things are going. And yet this place around Totapri, you have a Bushman's Museum. There's an annual, you know, New Year's Eve, we have a wood chopping competition and all of that. That's those small, smaller mills are all gone. We have mm. one old one here struggling. We sometimes, it's pretty much towards the end of a farm husband would just take the tractor with the bucket, go load up and go. But at one time, this place was thriving. There yeah. used to be, you know, a, a train would come right up to here. We had banks and whatnot. And right now I have a tiny four square. And yeah. other than that, everything is 80 k's away. And all the communities around here are, this area, let's say it's it's not uh, it's socioeconomically it's on the poorer side of mm. uh, Southland, mm. and one would think that a few decades ago now these sort of places would be what today they quaintly term as yeah, fifteen minute cities and everything and everything was available here and now suddenly mm. you're left to these dying communities and who who picks up the tab it's a travesty. Yeah, well, I, you know, harking back to my origins from Awakuni and Ratahi, Ratahi, uh, which is seven miles away, mm. used to have a hospital is where I was born, you know, and uh, none of that exists anymore. All of that infrastructure has been stripped out. And I think that it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, so much effort has been put into um, city living and building infrastructure and everything in cities but now you we've got the the other side of that economic coin that you know people can't afford to build and or live in those cities and so i i, I think if uh, there's an opportunity we should be decentralizing uh, government departments out of wellington to take the whole click out of the place and uh, breaking them up and spreading them around rural New Zealand. You know, we've got uh, this whole Zoom business and we've got fibre in the ground and we've got um, Skylink above us sometime soon, if not now. Uh, and, um, you know, I think people should be encouraged to, to repopulate the rural areas of New Zealand um, just from a livability point of view, you know. It's, uh... And yet, uh, as Don and I, we'd interviewed an American professor a fortnight back, Julian Romanello, they, they've now got this blueprint for livable cities, which are 
densely packed chicken coops, mm. everyone 15,000 per square kilometer. And this is definitions of livable has moved along. Yeah. It, it's amazing. You you have the media gaslighting us. This this very morning, there was this article on um, Newsroom almost a few days back about uh, how this, this all new conspiracies are coming with us. All people want to do is to make cities livable. Who wants mm. to live in Auckland today or Wellington or just yeah. the nightmare that they've created traffic-wise, yeah. infrastructure-wise? No, well, I, I listened to most of that interview with that uh, lady from um, Tulsa, wasn't it, Oklahoma? Julianne mm. from Manolo. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I thought she she made some terrific points. And uh, it's, uh, I was horrified to find out that stupid New Zealand has got all 70-odd councils have put their hand up and said, yeah, pick me. We want to be a 15-minute city. Well, I really see that working in Kaitaia or Awanui or... Uh, Ratahi or Tuna uh, or wherever, you know, rubbish, mm. absolute rubbish. Yep, we are the Petri dish, as we called it. So, look, we should move on a little bit further into your career. Um, Sumitomo Corporation, and then you went back to school, I gather. You went back to school. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I, um, uh, a friend of mine was the director of executive education at uh, Waikato University, and I was uh, sort of waxing lyrical one evening uh, at Rotary that I, was, I didn't quite know where I was going and that sort of thing. He said, I should do a degree. And I said, well, I have ne never done a bachelor's. And he said, oh, no worries. He said, what you know about business, you'll be away laughing. So uh, I, after I convinced my wife I should uh, go and do that, um, I went along and when my first assignment came back with a nice, big, fat, juicy A on the top of it, I thought oh, I might be able to do this. So, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, the full-time class at that stage at Waikato um, Business School, um, we had 15 Chinese, um, five German and three Kiwis, a Cook Islander and a Fijian. So it was, it was a great mix of people and we just had, we had a, terrific amount of uh, fun and and some really good learning and some experiences uh, and relationships which uh, I really value but uh, when when I finished with that um, I started doing um, a bit of business consulting which led me into an executive lease position with a um, private training establishment that had four um, uh, campuses in South Auckland and the one that I was based at in, in Hamilton. And, um, yeah, so I, I did that for nearly a couple of years. It was great experience um, in the education field, but I, I I started to yearn for that sawdust back in, in my socks again. And um, so I, I ended up getting a position with uh, Carter's uh, Building Supplies in Northland. And... Um, I went up there and uh, I ended up managing across three branches, uh, Mangafai, Mangatoroto and, and Whangarei. And um, yeah, that was that was that was good, but it got worse. Uh, I, I basically started in the in the jaws of the GFC and um, that that caused a transition of um, flexibility at branch level to be transitioned through to head office and so you know you became more of a puppet than a um 
um, a dancer yourself sort of thing. And so uh, I uh, I changed uh, shirt colours and uh, put on an orange one and went to um, Mitre 10 Mega in Albany. And I was there for nearly three years. Great experience working in the big box situation. Uh, completely different animal to the smaller um uh, businesses that I'd been involved with uh, with Carters um, and you know obviously a much bigger retail focus and um, yeah it's, uh, it, it's an awful lot to um, uh, to the operation of those and I'm quite interested to see a thing pop up on my um, uh, Twitter feed this morning that um, might attend uh, having a bit of a struggle financially because uh, the platform that I was using uh, 2012 to 2015 still exists today with probably about 10,000 patches over it and they're trying to put in a new SAP system which is just dragging them under financially. So I, I hope they make it through because they they could provide a good service. They, they do. Just for a bit of clarification, is MITRE 10, is that run, uh, each, each entity is... Um, individually owned or franchised is it or um is it a co-op how does it how does how does it all work yes it is a cooperative um so that when, when i joined there were about seven or eight stores that were um owned by the corp by the cooperative and run as like a corporate stores uh, but all the others were private but subsequently those corporate stores have been all sold um in amongst the existing owners so so the 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 big fiscal drag they're saying is about 67 million dollars uh, if the thing in the paper today was correct um is um trying to get them onto a new platform um for business operations so i hope that goes well yeah this one place where I've in recent times heard of is and Don. Sorry if I interrupted you. No, I heard Cart the Carter Hold Harvey and the Mighty Ten name together, and that was during these uh, lockdowns, Mark. When was it Carter Hold that was accused of withholding timber supplies, and Mighty Ten and the others were complaining? I don't know. Wonder if you have a comment on that because I know the Commerce Commission that that time started uh, checking this. Yeah. Well. Um... When when the market was steaming along before COVID, um, mm. you know you could you could sell the sawdust off the ground to a builder, you know. Uh, mm. But the um, the moment we hit COVID, um, all sorts of relationships fell apart, and particularly it was the ITM chain that had didn't have uh, a particularly strong alliance to um, Carters, and so. Uh, Carter's, um, as my understanding, sort of removed supply flexibility to ITM, so it put a, a lot of the ITM stores under a lot of lot of pressure. So, uh, um, yeah, you know, let's face it, um, Carter Hold Harvey belongs to New Zealand's richest man, Graham Hart, and you know, he, he probably doesn't even know that he still owns Carter Hold Harvey because all of his <laughs> other things are doing so well. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's a real shame um, that that the the industry coming back to your comments earlier, Jaspreet, about the sawmills closing down. That that the rationalities uh, that were needed to made be made amongst the sawmills 
came from um, a thing called conversion. So when you take uh, a, a round log and you try and make it into square timber, um, you you lose sawdust. And I see uh, you know Don smiling away there. He knows all about conversion. It's the the width of the kerf of your saw, how much you're throwing away in sawdust. So and most of these old sawmills were had very low conversion rates. Um, do you know what your conversion rate was, Don? It varied on the size of the log, but I had very hungry a curved a curf, um saw inserted yeah. tooth saw, so it was horrible uh, relatively. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, so you know, to to get to get the conversion rate up, anything above sort of fifty five percent, you're really starting to make some good money. You have to throw big technology at, uh, and that technology generally emanates out of the United States. And um, so, yeah, that that's the, those sort of localized inefficiencies. You know, a lot of those saw, old sawmills were based around native trees, which were big in diameter, whereas the pine trees are much smaller in diameter. So, therefore, yeah, you, the, that whole waste factor is a is a big struggle. You know, so mm. boy, are we learning a lot from you, Mark? This is Mark Holman um, from Papamoa. This is his life. He's telling us uh, what's and all. It's a fantastic story. I mean, it's, this is what I love about New Zealand. There's a lot of real New Zealand's New Zealanders with a lot of real grassroots stories to tell. And the more we can tell them, the better we'll be off in time. I mean, um, we talked earlier about the ETS and forestry ahead. I, I think the, that's the ultimate greenwashing going on in this country at the moment. But um, that's that's done until the uh, biodiversity credits come in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's going to be bigger. But you had another stage in recent times where you tried to um, develop a concept of modular homes and lower cost modular homes by by the sound of it, and things just went awry around twenty twenty. Would you like to build us into that, and then what happened in twenty twenty onward? Yeah, sure. Well. Um, um, I uh, and some business colleagues uh, basically based around my timber industry and supply chain experience decided that we we should be able to and, and could be able to build um, modular housing. So we spent quite a bit of time and money uh, on uh, design and engineering and so forth. And we came up with... Um, uh, a, a very good um, sound concept, which um, we finally got to the point of um, having sales uh, confirmed. And um, literally the day that we were planning to start our, um, uh, our first earthworks and starting construction on the first um, modules in the factory, um, was the day that Auckland went into its four-month lockdown. So, um, so that that really did put a major spanner in the works. And um, um, then the ensuing supply uh, supply chain issues around uh, the availability of products and timeliness and so forth. And if uh, you've ever project manage building a house uh you will know that you know you need to line up lots and lots of things in in a in a good timely fashion 
but when you can't guarantee on the supply availability of, of a product, um, uh, every, everything becomes um, uh, quite quite hairy. The thing that I didn't understand outside of my timber and supply chain experience was how damn complex and overbearing the whole compliance uh, uh, and regulatory system had become with uh, with housing. In, in the early 80s, I bought a section and built a house employing a builder and a plumber and electrician and that sort of thing in five months. Um, and I remember virtually no paperwork. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you change your mind as to, uh, uh, you know, once you've got building consent and, and you can't get a particular size of weatherboard, but you can get another size, so you put that on, then you're up for several hundred dollars with council for a minor variation. You're up for uh, getting your designer or your draftsman to redraw things and so forth. And it's just absolutely became a nightmare and one of the one of the things you know we're in a, in a situation where you're committed to be spending say like 60 70,000 bucks a week on materials and labor and subbies and all that sort of thing so hitting your uh, income um, tranches is pretty important but when when uh, eight to twelve weeks for getting a, a consent through turns into eight and twelve months, and in some and in one instance went to twenty four months where it was tangled up with a resource consent, um, you know that, that those actually become the chokeholds on things, you know, and and um, people say, oh well, you know, the, you, there must be something wrong with you because. The, it failed, but the, the you know I, I liken it to uh, that um, uh, test that they do with the SAS that they take them out and they drop them uh, almost in waist deep uh, um, swamp and make them fight their way through, and that's exactly what every day uh, with the, with the housing um, felt like. And I, and I absolutely take my hat off to the group housing companies who are out there and are building and are uh, delivering, they they must have worked out some pretty lickety-split things to uh, make it through because the, the, um, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And now listening to you, Mark, I can't help but I always compare statistics, what's actually being said in the media. Now, the New Zealand Trade and Enterprise website very proudly declares that for past several years in a row, New Zealand has been ranked number one in the world for ease of doing business. And they say this index is informed by academic research and measures 12 business regulatory topics across 190 countries. What <laughs> you are saying, <laughs> I, I can see that. Rubbish! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, out of, so there's obviously someone spending some money trying to get some, like, I, I know what statistics mean, sweet F all. Yeah. But this is, this is what the, our government, our regulators openly declare. Isn't it galling to have this thrown at your face when someone like you, you are you're saying doing business is, com you're comparing it to an SAS military exercise? Mm, yeah, no, it, it, it's crazy. Like um, one one of these projects that took nearly two years to get um, resource consent and building consent. The resource consent 
requirement was just because we were by the tiniest of percentage over the impermeable area allowable in the district plan. Well, you know, the district plan is just something that's made up by some wombles sitting in an office, you know, it doesn't really have, you know, a lot of relativity. So the offset, and so this this cost nearly $18,000 between the council's costs and me employing a planner on my side and a whole lot of other jiggling and wiggling. And if, if you, for the benefit of our listeners, what did the planner do ultimately? What was the way out here? How yeah. did you come to a resolution? Yeah. So so the resolution was for $18,000, we, we could plant five pittosporum trees. Oh, my God. Quite Somebody expensive kill trees, me aren't they? now. <laughs> uh, but that's that's what's going to happen when we have done, we've spoken of that the previous boss, and I'll forget her name, now you'll remember it, who's now gone to the head of the Productivity Commission, the one oh. who oversaw the Ministry of Environment staffing going up from 320 to 1200 during her tenure. This no. lady has now moved to the head of New Zealand Productivity Commission. And, <laughs> and the name, Don, do you remember? Linda Robertson. It's a massive yeah. contradiction, isn't it? Going to yeah. the Productivity the, Commission. Yeah, that's that's what's happening. What you're seeing is our very quintessential def- Kiwi definition of uh, productivity. So so just um, going back, uh, yeah, absolutely, Jasper, sorry to interrupt. The getting a code of compliance for your modular homes. How hard was that? Because I'm aware of a company that's um, been taken to hell and back uh, over about three or four years to get its code of compliance for a passive home concept where they would make lots of homes. Did you have to go through a massive um, barrage of of uh, experimentation and, and planning plans and presentations to to planners and consultants to get get past go. Um, no, I hate to give credit to Auckland Auckland Council, but I, <laughs> I will do that. That they actually set up a um, a, a modular consenting um, subsection within their consenting organisation. And so we we had allocated to us one um, um, building inspector uh, who was a lovely Canadian guy who come from um, modular housing in Canada, and and rather than being uh, an obstacle, he he was actually very helpful in and allowing us to negotiate the the lines between um, the standard 3604 timber framed housing and what we were uh, doing with our um, modular stuff. So with for, for the benefit of those who are not quite sure, 3604 is the, the building code for um, timber framed houses and there's a whole lot of things in there that you can do. Um, and for the things that we wanted to do outside of that, we had to have full, uh, full uh, engineering sign-off and um, right. um, uh, from structural engineers and so forth. And you know, every time you send them an email, it costs you a thousand dollars. You know, so it's like ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> doing 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 business in New Zealand ain't easy, that's for sure. And um, yeah, I think I think that's a that's the nub of all of most of our problems. Um, so, Mark, yeah, we've we've taken up a lot of your time, but we do need to just go to the point of 2020, the lockdowns, 
seriously put you under and your you know fellow investors under a lot of strain um the the lockdowns the forced or the coercive regime that we were put under to to be vaccinated you know how did that all uh, impact your life because I, I know it has um and you know if you're if you feel free to talk about it I'm we're happy to hear it because on greenwashed we we like to get this sort of stuff out and um I think you have a story yeah no well, thanks for the opportunity um sort of going back to um my heritage my dad was basically a teenager when he was in uh the air force during the second world war and so it made a big really big impression on him so when i was growing up as a boy we i had tons of information about stuff to do with world war ii and i actually had a really good grasp on the nuremberg trials and uh and the articles flowing out from that around medical experimentation and so forth so and on on top of that because of my heavy industry involvement in, in forestry, sawmilling and uh, port operations and so forth, um, I, I've got a pretty good skill to, to make a rapid risk assessment of what's, um, what's dangerous, what's going to kill me and what might kill somebody else. And um, so, yeah, it didn't take me long to to sniff out um, uh, the uh, rot that was in Denmark um, with um, with this whole COVID thing. Um, but it was just like, I guess, like so many people, we couldn't actually believe it was being done to us, you know? Yeah. Supposedly yeah. Um, by the people that uh, we had given leadership to the country and around the world to. And um, yeah, so I, I I think that I've learned more in the last three years than I have in the previous sixty-two. So uh, it's not much of an indictment, but personally, uh, I so because of those things of uh, understanding that uh, I, I shouldn't be interfered with uh, by anyone, I chose not to um, have the vaccination. I was the only one in uh, my immediate family. My wife didn't want to, but she's a primary health care giver and um, she um, basically to keep a job, she, she had to have that. Um, our three children chose to um, get the uh, vaccinations. And um, unfortunately, um, because our... Uh, eldest daughter is a, a public service imbued in the swamp in Wellington. Um, yeah, she um, just took really uh, um, great umbrage to me not being vaccinated and the risk that I posed to everyone in creation. If the vaccine had been any good, it probably would have worked. But um, And so uh, I wasn't, and by default, uh, my wife and I weren't allowed to um, see our grandkids, uh, or, or, and uh, basically, it caused the um, uh, the the estrangement, I guess, for want of a bit of a word, uh, with um, her and the family and ourselves, which is, uh, you know, that's that's a real heartbreak. Mm. Um, and but but wait, it gets worse. Um, <laughs> my my wife's uh, sister, who trained as a nurse and 
remains in the um, health industry, but in management, uh, um, she she became quite belligerent about uh, me not choosing to be uh, vaccinated, and um, yeah, so uh, push came to shove. Uh, um, we ended up losing my wife's only sibling, so uh, not by death, but by uh, estrangement. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it's um, those sorts of things, along with uh, all the burdens of uh, um, industry and um, um, political things going on, it's like, you know, wh why the hell do we bother to get up some mornings, you know? It's, mm. um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty tough. Pretty it's tough. been tough, all right. And, um, you know, you, I have to say, um, Mark, you're not alone. The stories we hear are all around this country, similar stories. Mm. Um, the destruction of the family unit, the destruction of of um, right from wrong, really. Mm. Um, and, and all that's gone with it has been unbelievable. And I think we've all been subjected, those of us on, on the people we talk to around RCR, a lot of us have been subjected to this sort of stuff. Mm. It's it's unacceptable. Uh, I dare say we live in hope that someone will say sorry one day, but I suppose that is perhaps a tall order. Mm. But Yok, you've been to you've been to hell like many others, and uh, hopefully you 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 know you you've still got a smile on your face, and that's a, that's the the key thing. And um, you know there's good people around you that will support you through it. But man, it's been tough, that's for sure. And um, you know I. I take my hat off to you for sort of opening up on on our show because not everyone's willing to do that. Not everyone's willing to do it. And, uh, you know, drawing this to a close, I see um, on your Twitter feed or your X feed, you say a Thomas Jefferson quote is, when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty. Mm. And I think that's what you and I and Jaspreet and others around us um, sort of feel it's a really good quote and so mark can i we just draw this to a close but thank you for um coming to us on the rcr feedback channel for us to find you and um and we're very grateful for to, to have had this chat and have uh this is your life mark holman <laughs> yeah well thank you to both of you and to rcr for giving um, community to uh, the, those of us who have been estranged. But I, I sort of reflect upon, uh, I think it's a quote attributable to Winston Churchill saying, when you're going through hell, don't stop. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you so much. And listeners, Mark came through us at Don said through the feedback channels, 2057 is a number or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Goodbye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners. It's great to have your company uh, again today. Um, and it's always our duty to suggest feedback on 2057 or realitycheck.radio at uh, inbox. Oh, what I've forgotten it all of a sudden. Um, you'll correct me, Jaspreet. I, I will inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. Don't <laughs> Guys, the topsy turvy world on. I stuffed that up without it right <laughs> in front of me. It just shows me my memory is hopeless, like a sieve. And so, <laughs> why why talk about feedback? Um, it's why we have our guest today. Actually, we got some very good feedback by a guy, Mark Holman, a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, hmm, I think I'll give this guy a call, and. 
I learned that he has um, timber and sawdust in his boots, or just timber in his veins, and as he says, sawdust in his boots. So I thought, yeah, a bit like me, perhaps. But when I talked to him, it was clearly a whole lot more intensive than me. So um, today we have Mark Holman. He's living in Papamoa, and he has a long and varied history in the or many industries, but mainly in the timber industry and forestry. So welcome, Mark, and welcome to Greenwashed. Uh, tell me, where did all this start for you? Central North Island, I think. Yes, no, that's correct. Uh, hi, Don and Jaspreet. Um, yeah, and I was uh, born and raised in Awakuni in Central North Island, and my uh, dad was a logger in the Karioi Forest, and um um, yeah, from age 10, you know, the, the times when uh, kids actually went to work with their parents. And so, uh, yeah, no PlayStation. I, I had real toys like bulldozers and diggers and trucks uh, to, to play with, you know, the big boy's sandpit. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a really good upbringing. And um, but we, we shifted in 1973 from Awakuni uh, to uh, uh, quite a juxtaposed uh, location which is the Bay of Islands and um, dad got a contract in the Waitangi Forest and um, yes and I went to school at Bay of Islands College and um, yeah had a had a real happy time there uh, but all of my spare time was with dad uh, helping out uh, either in the bush or in the workshop fixing machinery and chainsaws and rati and so when I, when I left school, I, I just naturally migrated into the family business and there I stayed for um, 16, 17 years until uh, we sold the business in, um, in the early 90s. At that point, um, I, I went and joined uh, a, an American company that had purchased some of the um, state forests in New Zealand, uh, what was then ITT Ryanair, which is now... Matariki Ryanair or Ryanair Matariki or something like that um, and um, so yeah I, I fulfilled a, quite an interesting role there of supervising uh, 20 harvesting crews and half a dozen um, log transport crews and um, uh, then I got involved with them into buying private woodlots uh, be they be from farmers or private foresters and um, yeah, so uh, that that was that was a great run until the company decided to restructure, which um, uh, gave me the opportunity to, to go out and buy timber on my own account and and act for sawmills as their buying agent and and organising harvesting and marketing of um, uh, log products around the North Island, and. Um, but that, that had a downside because uh, I got involved in a take-or-pay situation and right. um, uh, the uh, the take wasn't looking particularly good, so uh, I, I had to find an alternative to it, which m meant I ended up uh, getting a sawn um, uh, market in Australia for the timber, um, and then I needed to convince a sawmill to produce it for me and... I went into a deal where I actually leased a sawmill um, and that uh, in the 10,000 problems that you could have in a sawmill, which I believe you understand a fair bit about that, Don, 
and you've still got all 10 fingers and so have I, so that's always a good start. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, the, the final blow was uh, that I, I got my first three export shipments on three consecutive vessels that sailed across the Tasman and sailed straight into a 14- or 15-week wharfie strike in Sydney. Yeah. And, um, you know, literally every exporting sawmill in New Zealand had um, significant quantities of timber on those vessels. And basically the banks went through and picked the winners and the losers because I was just a startup and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I was the biggest loser. <laughs> well, probably wasn't the biggest loser, but I definitely ended up losing it. So, um from from there, uh, I, I managed to wiggle my way into a, a role with a uh, one of the five Japanese trading houses, Sumitomo Corporation, and um, I was able to facilitate the uh, trading of New Zealand sawn timber products uh, around the Pacific Rim. Yeah, so 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 that's a good point to jump in. There's a lot of discussion in the last, you know, as long as I can remember, really about how New Zealand just exports these logs unprocessed um, or as chips uh, into uh, Asian countries, and we don't do um, any processing in New Zealand. What's this? What was the state then? Clearly, you were exporting sawn timber, so there was there was some processing. Um, what is why did that status seem to diminish over the last sort of 20 years? And what was it that has basically killed off the small sawmills in this country? Um, it was a number of uh, things in there that the big factor is foreign exchange. Um, you know, we need, a, we need a robust exchange rate uh, across the Tasman because it's the most expensive piece of water in the world to put freight across. Uh, and also to the United States, those um, the the volumes into Asia of sawn timber are infinitesimally low, and and that that's sort of a, a back to front trade barrier really uh, mm. that they're protecting their own labour markets, um, uh, and we we don't help ourselves in the the way we market our logs anyway because um, I'm currently fulfilling a, a phytosanitary role at the Port of Tauranga for logs and sawn timber. And, um, you know, I, I was inspecting pruned logs today. Uh, there was black as a pair of my school shoes, you know, and uh, you know, so what, what is the what is the benefit of, of going through a, a 28, 30-year regime of pruning and thinning to grow a, a premium prune butt to let it sit for, you know, mm. 8 to 12 weeks on the port before it then has six weeks to sail up to um, China and then have goodness knows how many more, you know, it could they could be six, seven months old, maybe even more, you know. So, um, yeah, we... In, in the timber industry, I think that we have been trapped into that cycle that the early meat industry was, and we haven't actually worked out how to um, get the value proposition out of the raw product. And uh, exporting the raw product is just, it's easy, you know? And um, 
but what I what I've seen in um, recent months um, down at the port here is that the whole move from the style of logging that happened uh, when I was logging uh, in my prime, uh, which was a very um, manual process with chainsaws and you know men on uh, and women on skids cutting up logs, everything's now done by processes. Um, and, um, you know, you're putting uh, $1.2, $1.3 million into a processor, you need to poke the volume through. And uh, therefore, what I'm seeing is that the quality of logs are generally going down and down as as to the specifications, you know. So it, It's interesting, listeners, one of the hardest jobs, I've and I've been around some hard jobs, and I think I've done a few myself, one of the hardest, toughest jobs I've ever seen done was skidder operators, which is uh, the machines that tow logs up or across the terrain to, to a site to be loaded, um, where there was guys towing heavy wire ropes running through knee-deep mud, <laughs> um, pulling these wire ropes, I've never seen people um, work day in, day out doing that. And they start at four in the morning, five in the morning and go till till dark. And a heck of a lot of those people ended up going broke because of the boom bust cycle of logging and and harvesting. So um and processing. So you know, I'm I'm concerned that on one hand, New Zealand sort of wants us to do all this value add locally. But we've got cost structures that just seem to get in the way and we've got rules and regulations. In farming sense, that happens. And I think it's probably happened in the, in the timber industry as well. Would that be right? Or um, to, a, to a certain degree. But, um, you know, the, the earlier discussion that you and I had uh, about um, um, changes in the 1980s with rogenomics, um, to me, is, is a fundamental that, for the greater part of the volume that's being exported from New Zealand, uh, that the the wood product does not belong to New Zealand or New Zealanders. Mm. Um, you know, we have uh, sold, uh, you know, the the stumpage rights to offshore entities, and um, sure they. Uh, they, they may pay or their staff may pay PAYE and there's a bit of GST swapping mm. around here and there. But basically every ship that leaves New Zealand with logs on is exporting profits that could have otherwise stayed here if there was a higher level of ownership of the base resource um, uh, still here in New Zealand. And, and I think that that in itself is a fundamental problem. We've, we've got about 27 million annual harvest is about seven and a half is or about well let's let's make the numbers easy about seven million domestic consumption of logs and 20 million exported well if if it's um 20 million times 40 dollars say average return to stump uh what's that 800 million is that, is that? Yeah. 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 yeah yeah so it's nearly a billion so so you know that's that's a lot of extra money that could be washing around some of it in state-owned entities or whatever, um, or uh, into, you know, privately New Zealand-owned forest companies. But, you know, we've we've lost those resources um, for the most part to overseas entities. So. 
Mm. And my concern has been um, a lot of people want a low, you know, a, a low cross rate currency um, foreign exchange rate, uh, as that's that's the thing that helps um, exporters survive. Well, I would suggest that the way New Zealander could could do more of that further processing and do more of it, have more ownership locally, is if we had a stronger currency. And so I sort of have a belief that's different to most New Zealand farmers or exporters. Uh, a high currency is something that we have benefited from in recent years. And sadly, we're now down to a, a weak currency again. And I see it all going through the same same old cycle. It's interesting. I'm really proud that you've um, I've sold my trees into mainly local consumption and sawmilling. So I sort of feel quite good about that. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So just tell me. Yeah, moving on. I mean, it's it's a it's a horrible story when you look at the the sawmills that closed and and the people that lost their lost lost their family business or their livelihood. But now we've got a thing called the emissions trading scheme, and I call it a thing because I have not much time for it. But what's that going to do to the New Zealand forestry landscape in terms of um, logs coming in sort of 10, 20, 30 years time? Well, it, it, it's actually an odd mix because, um, you know, we a few months ago, just prior to Gabriel, we went down to the Hawke's Bay and I was horrified to see some beautiful hill country farmland all covered with dots with uh, pine trees planted in. Nobody loves pine trees and the benefit that they bring to this country more than I do. But, you know, I, I don't see the necessity for that type of carbon farming uh, and the fact that a lot of these carbon farmings, uh, farms are not ever intended to be harvested, you know, and that that in itself is going to be an enormous environmental um, disaster that probably uh, my grandkids and your grandkids will be scratching their heads saying, what, what the hell were those people thinking about back then, you know? Bye. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that the whole carbon the emissions trading thing is just a can full of worms and the sooner it gets run through the shredder like so many other pieces of legislation the better i don't think that on they're going to be finishing up so soon now where uh, i live mark surrounded by pines on three sides probably another one soon if if the way things are going and yet this place around Tuatapri, you have a bushman's museum there's an annual you know new year's eve we have a wood chopping competition and all of that. That's those small, smaller mills are all gone. We have mm. one old one here struggling. We sometimes, it's pretty much towards the end of a farmhouse. Husband would just take the tractor with the bucket, go load up and go. But at one time, this place was thriving. There yeah. used to be, you know, a, a, a train would come right up to here. We had banks and whatnot. And right now I have a tiny four square. And yeah. other than that, everything is 80 k's away. And all the communities around here are, this area, let's say, it's it's not uh, it's socioeconomically it's on the poorer side of mm. uh, Southland, mm. and one would think that a few decades ago now these sort of places would be what today they quaintly term as yeah, fifteen minute cities and everything and everything was available here, and now suddenly mm. you're left to these dying communities and who who picks up the tab? It's a travesty. Yeah, well, I, you know, harking back to my origins from Oakuni and Ratahi, Ratahi, uh, which is seven miles away, mm. used to have a hospital. Is where I was born, you know, and uh, none of that exists anymore. All of that infrastructure has been stripped out, and I think that it's unfortunate that uh, 
you know, so much effort has been put into um, city living and building infrastructure and everything in cities. But now you've, we've got the the other side of that economic coin that, you know, people can't afford to build and or live in those cities. And so I, I, I think if uh, there's an opportunity, we should be decentralising uh, government departments out of Wellington to take the whole click out of the place and uh, breaking them up and spreading them around rural New Zealand. You know, we've got uh, this whole Zoom business and we've got fibre in the ground and we've got um, Skylink above us sometime soon, if not now. Uh, and... Um, you know, I think people should be encouraged to, to repopulate the rural areas of New Zealand um, just from a livability point of view, you know. It's, uh... And yet, uh, as Don and I, we'd interviewed an American professor a fortnight back, Julian Romanello, they, they've now got this blueprint for livable cities, which are densely packed chicken coops, mm. everyone 15,000 per square kilometre. This is definitions of livable has moved along. Yeah. It, it's amazing you you have the media gaslighting us this this very morning there was this article on um, newsroom almost a few days back about uh, how this this all new conspiracies are coming with us all people want to do is to make cities livable who mm. wants to live in auckland today or wellington or just yeah. the nightmare that they've created traffic wise yeah. infrastructure wise no, well, I, I listened to most of that interview with that uh, lady from um, Tulsa, wasn't it, Oklahoma? Julianne mm. Romanello. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I thought she she made some terrific points. And uh, it's, uh, I was horrified to find out that stupid New Zealand has got all 70-odd councils have put their hand up and said, yeah, pick me, we want to be a 15-minute city. Well, I see, really see that working in Kaitaia or Awanui or... Uh, Ratahi or Tuna uh, or wherever, you know, rubbish, mm. absolute rubbish. Yep, we are the Petri dish, as we called it. So, look, we should move on a little bit further into your career. Um, Sumitomo Corporation, and then you went back to school, I gather. You went back to school. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I um, uh, A friend of mine was the Director of Executive Education at uh, Waikato University, and I was uh, sort of waxing lyrical one evening uh, at Rotary that I, was, I didn't quite know where I was going and that sort of thing. He said, I should do a degree. And I said, well, I have ne never done a bachelor's. And he said, oh, no worries. He said, what you know about business, you'll be away laughing. So uh, I, after I convinced my wife I should uh, go and do that, um, I went along and when my first assignment came back with a nice, big, fat, juicy A on the top of it, I thought oh, I might be able to do this. So, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, the full-time class at that stage at Waikato um, Business School, um, we had 15 Chinese, um, five German and three Kiwis, a Cook Islander and a Fijian. So it was, it was a great mix of people and we just had, we had a, terrific amount of uh, fun and and some really good learning and some experiences uh, and relationships which uh, I really value but uh, when when I finished with that um, I started doing um, a bit of business consulting which led me into an executive lease position with a um, private training establishment that had four um, 
campuses in South Auckland and the one that I was based at in, in Hamilton. And um, yeah, so I, I did that for nearly a couple of years. It was great experience um, in the education field, but I, I I started to yearn for that sawdust back in, in my socks again. And um, so I, I ended up getting a position with uh, Carter's uh, Building Supplies in Northland. And um, I went up there and uh, I ended up managing across three branches, uh, Mangafai, Mangatoroto and, and Whangarei. And um, yeah, that was that was that was good, but it got worse. Uh, I, I basically started in the in the jaws of the GFC, and um, that that caused a transition of um, flexibility at branch level to be transitioned through to head office, and so you know you became more of a puppet than a. Um, um, a dancer yourself, sort of thing, and so uh, I uh, I changed uh, shirt colours and uh, put on an orange one and went to um, Mitre Ten Mega in Albany, and I was there for nearly three years. Great experience working in the big box situation, uh, completely different animal to the smaller um, uh, businesses that I'd been involved with uh, with Carters. Um, and you know, obviously, a much bigger retail focus, and um, yeah, it's uh, it, it an awful lot to um, um, to the operation of those. And I'm quite interested to see a thing pop up on my um, uh, Twitter feed this morning that um, might attend uh, having a bit of a struggle financially because uh, the platform that I was using. Uh, 2012 to 2015 still exists today with probably about 10,000 patches over it and they're trying to put in a new SAP system which is just dragging them under financially so I, I hope they make it through because they they could provide a good service. They, they do just for a bit of clarification is Mitre 10 is that run uh, each, each entity is um, individually owned or franchised is it or um, is it a co-op? How does it how does how does it all work? Yes, it is a cooperative. Um, so the, when when I joined, there were about seven or eight stores that were um, owned by the corp by the cooperative and run as like a corporate stores. Uh, but all the others were private. But subsequently, those corporate stores have been all sold um, in amongst the existing owners. So. So the 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 big fiscal drag they're saying is about sixty seven million dollars. Uh, if the thing in the paper today was correct, um, is um, trying to get them onto a new platform um, for business operations. So I hope that goes well. Yeah. This one place where I've in recent times heard of is, and don't, sorry if I interrupted you. No, I heard Cart the Carter Hold, Harvey, and the Mitre 10 name together. And that was during these uh, lockdowns, Mark. When was it Carter Hold that was accused of withholding timber supplies and Mitre 10 and the others were complaining? I don't know, wonder if you have a comment on that, because I know the Commerce Commission at that, that time started uh, checking this. Yeah, well... Um... When when the market was steaming along before COVID, um, mm. you know you could you could sell the sawdust off the ground to a builder, you know, 
but the um, the moment we hit COVID, um, all sorts of relationships fell apart, and particularly it was the ITM chain that had didn't have uh, a particularly strong alliance to um, Carters, and so uh, Carters, um, as my understanding, sort of removed supply flexibility to ITM. So it put a, a lot of the ITM stores under a lot of lot of pressure. So, uh, um, yeah, you know, let's face it, um, Catterhold Harvey belongs to New Zealand's richest man, Graham Hart, and, you know, he, he probably doesn't even know that he still owns Catterhold Harvey because all of his <laughs> other things are doing so well. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a real shame um, that, that the the industry coming back to your comments earlier, Jaspreet, about the sawmills closing down, that that the rationalities uh, that were needed to made be made amongst the sawmills came from um, a thing called conversion. So when you take uh, a, a round log and you try and make it into square timber. Um, you you lose sawdust, and I see uh, you know Don smiling away there. He knows all about conversion. It's the the width of the kerf of your saw, how much you're throwing away in sawdust. So, and most of these old sawmills were had very low conversion rates. Um, do you know what your conversion rate was, Don? It varied on the size of the log, but I had very hungry a kerf a kerf um, saw inserted yeah. tooth saw, so it was horrible uh, relatively. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, so you know, to to get to get the conversion rate up, anything above sort of fifty five percent, you're really starting to make some good money. You have to throw big technology at, uh, and that technology generally emanates out of the United States. And um, so, yeah, that that's that those sort of localized inefficiencies. You know, a lot of those saw, old sawmills were based around native trees, which were big in diameter, whereas the pine trees are much smaller in diameter. So, therefore, you, you the, that whole waste factor is a is a big struggle. You know, so mm. boy, are we learning a lot from you, Mark? This is Mark Holman um, from Papamoa. This is his life. He's telling us uh, what's and all. It's a fantastic story. I mean, it's, this is what I love about New Zealand. There's a lot of real New Zealand's New Zealanders with a lot of real grassroots stories to tell. And the more we can tell them, the better we'll be off in time. I mean, um, we talked earlier about the ETS and forestry head. I, I think the, that's the ultimate greenwashing going on in this country at the moment. But that's um, that's done until the uh, biodiversity credits come in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's going to be bigger. But you had another stage in recent times where you tried to um, develop a concept of modular homes and lower cost modular homes by by the sound of it, and things just went awry around twenty twenty. Would you like to build us into that, and then what happened in twenty twenty onward? Yeah, sure. Well. Um, um, I uh, and some business colleagues uh, basically based around my timber industry and supply chain experience decided that we we should be able to and, and could be able to build um, modular housing. So we spent quite a bit of time and money uh, on uh, design and engineering and so forth. And we came up with... Um, 
a, a very good um, sound concept, which um, we finally got to the point of um, having sales uh, confirmed and um, literally the day that we were planning to start our um, uh, our first earthworks and starting construction on the first um, modules in the factory um, was the day that Auckland went into its four-month lockdown. So, um, so that that really did put a major spanner in the works, and um, um, then the ensuing supply uh, supply chain issues around uh, the availability of products and timeliness and so forth and if uh, you've ever project managed building a house uh, you will know that you know you need to line up lots and lots of things in in a, in a good timely fashion but when you can't guarantee on the supply availability of, of a product um, uh, every, everything becomes um, uh, quite quite hairy the thing that I didn't understand outside of my timber and supply chain experience was how damn complex and overbearing the whole compliance uh, uh, and regulatory system had become with uh, with housing. And in the early 80s, I bought a section and built a house employing a builder and a plumber and electrician and that sort of thing in five months um, and I remember virtually no paperwork um, but uh, you know if if you change your mind as to uh, uh, you know once you've got building consent and, and you can't get a particular size of weatherboard but you can get another size so you put that on then you're up for several hundred dollars with council for a minor variation you're up for uh, getting your designer or your draftsman to redraw things and so forth. And it just absolutely became a nightmare. And one of the one of the things, you know, we're in a, in a situation where you're committed to be spending, say, like 60,000, 70,000 bucks a week on materials and labour and subbies and all that sort of thing. So hitting your uh, income um, tranches is pretty important. But when when uh, eight to 12 weeks for getting a, a consent through turns into eight and 12 months, and in, some, and in one instance went to 24 months where it was tangled up with a resource consent, um, you know, that, that those actually become the chokeholds on things, you know, and... and um, People say, oh, well, you know, the, you, there must be something wrong with you because it failed. But, the, the you know, I, I liken it to uh, that um, uh, test that they do with the SAS, that they take them out and they drop them almost in waist-deep uh, um, swamp and make them fight their way through. And that's exactly what every day uh, with, the, with the housing um, felt like, and I, and I absolutely take my hat off to the group housing companies who are out there and are building and are uh, delivering. They they must have worked out some pretty lickety split things to uh, make it through because the the um, it's not easy.
It's not easy at all. And now listening to you, Mark, I can't help but I always compare statistics, what's actually being said in the media. Now, the New Zealand Trade and Enterprise website very proudly declares that for past several years in a row, New Zealand has been ranked number one in the world for ease of doing business. And they say this index is informed by academic research and measures 12 business regulatory topics across 190 countries. What <laughs> you are saying. <laughs> I, I can see that. Rubbish. Yeah. 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 So out of so there's obviously someone spending some money trying to get some like I, I know what statistics mean, sweet F all. Yeah. But this is this is what the, our government, our regulators openly declare. Isn't it galling to have this thrown at your face when someone like you, you are you're saying doing business is com- you're comparing it to an SAS military exercise? Mm. Yeah, no, it, it, it's crazy. Like um, one one of these projects that took nearly two years to get um, resource consent and building consent, the resource consent requirement was just because we were by the tiniest of percentage over the impermeable area allowable in the district plan. Well, you know, the district plan is just something that's made up by some wombles sitting in an office, you know, it doesn't really have, you know, a lot of relativity. So the offset, and so this this cost nearly $18,000 between the council's costs and me employing a planner on my side and a whole lot of other jiggling and wiggling. And if, if you, for the benefit of our listeners, what did the planner do ultimately? What was the way out here? How yeah. did you come to a resolution? Yeah, so, so the resolution was... For eighteen thousand dollars, we we could plant five pittosporum trees. Oh my god! Uh, Somebody kill trees, me now. <laughs> uh, but that's that's what's going to happen when we have done. You know, we've spoken of that the previous boss, and I'll forget her name. Now you'll remember it. Who's now gone to the head of the Productivity Commission, the one oh. who oversaw the Ministry of Environment staffing going up from three hundred twenty to twelve hundred during her tenure. This lady has now moved to the head of New Zealand Productivity Commission. And and the name, Don, do you remember? Linda Robertson. It's a massive contradiction, isn't it? Going to the Productivity Commission. Yeah, that's that's what's happening. What you're seeing is our very quintessential TV definition of uh, productivity. So so just um, going back, uh, absolutely, Jasper, sorry to interrupt. The... Getting a code of compliance for your modular homes, how hard was that? Because I'm aware of a company that's um, been taken to hell and back uh, over about three or four years to get its code of compliance for a passive home concept where they would make lots of homes. Did you have to go through a massive um, barrage of of uh, experimentation and, and planning plans and presentations to to planners and consultants to get get past go. Um, no, I hate to give credit to Auckland, Auckland Council, but I, <laughs> I will do that. That they actually set up a um, a, a modular consenting um, subsection within their consenting organisation. And so we, we had allocated to us one um, um, building inspector uh, who was a lovely Canadian guy who come from um, modular housing in Canada. And and rather than being uh, an obstacle, he, he was actually very helpful in, in allowing us to negotiate the 
the lines between um, the standard 3604 timber-framed housing and what we were uh, doing with our um, modular stuff. So with for, for the benefit of those who are not quite sure, 3604 is the, the building code for um, timber-framed houses, and there's a whole lot of things in there that you can do. Um, and for the things that we wanted to do outside of that, we had to have full, uh, full uh, engineering sign-off in, um, right. um, uh, from structural engineers and so forth. And, you know, every time you send them an email, it costs you $1,000, you know, so it's like, ah! Yeah, yeah. Doing, doing, doing business in New Zealand ain't easy, that's for sure, and um, yeah, no, I think I think that's a that's the nub of all of most of our problems um so mark yeah we've we've taken up a lot of your time but we do need to just go to the point of 2020 the lockdowns seriously put you under and your you know fellow investors under a lot of strain um the the lockdowns the forced or the coercive regime that we are put under to to be vaccinated yeah, how did that all uh, impact your life? Because I, I know it has, um, and you know, if you if you feel free to talk about it, I'm, we're happy to hear it. Because on Greenwashed, we we like to get this sort of stuff out, and um, I think you have a story. Yeah, no, well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, sort of go, going back to um, my heritage, my dad was basically a teenager when he was in uh, the Air Force during the Second World War, and so. It made a big, really big impression on him. So when I was growing up as a boy, we I had tons of information about stuff to do with World War Two, and I actually had a really good grasp on the Nuremberg trials and uh, and the articles flowing out from that around medical experimentation and so forth. So, and on on top of that, because of my heavy industry involvement and in, in forestry, sawmilling and uh, port operations and so forth. Um, I, I've got a pretty good skill to, to make a rapid risk assessment of what's, um, what's dangerous, what's going to kill me and what might kill somebody else. And um, so, yeah, it didn't take me long to, to sniff out um, uh, the uh, rot that was in Denmark um, with um, with this whole COVID thing. Um, but it was just like, I guess, like so many people, we couldn't actually believe it was being done to us, you know? Yeah. Supposedly yeah. Um, by the people that uh, we had given leadership to the country and around the world to. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I think that I've learned more in the last three years than I have in the previous 62. So uh, it's not much of an indictment. But personally, uh, I so because of those things of uh, understanding that uh, I, I shouldn't be interfered with uh, by anyone, I chose not to um, have the vaccination. It was the only one in uh, my immediate family. My wife didn't want to, but she's a primary health care giver and um, she um, basically to keep a job, she, she had to have that. Um, our three children chose to um, get the uh, vaccinations 
And um, unfortunately, um, because our uh, eldest daughter is a, a public service imbued in the swamp in Wellington, um, yeah, she um, just took really uh, um, great umbrage to me not being vaccinated and the risk that I posed to everyone in creation. If the vaccine had been any good, it probably would have worked. But um, And so uh, I wasn't, and by default, uh, my wife and I weren't allowed to um, see our grandkids. Uh, or, or, and uh, basically it caused the... Um, uh, the the estrangement, I guess, for want of a better of a word, uh, with um, her and the family and ourselves, which is, uh, you know, that's that's a real heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but wait, it gets worse. Um, <laughs> my my wife's uh, sister, who trained as a nurse and uh, remains in the um, health industry, but in management. Uh, um, she she became quite belligerent about uh, me not choosing to be uh, vaccinated and um, yeah so uh, push came to shove uh, um, we ended up losing my wife's only sibling so uh, not by death but by uh, estrangement so mm. yeah I mean it's um, those sorts of things along with the uh, all the burdens of uh, um, industry and um, um, political things going on. It's like, you know, why the hell do we bother to get up some mornings, you know? Mm. um, Yeah, so it's it's pretty tough. It's been tough, all right. And, um, you know, I have to say, um, Mark, you're not alone. The stories we hear are all around this country, similar stories. Mm. Um, The destruction of the family unit, the destruction of... of, um, right from wrong really mm. um and and all that's gone with it has been unbelievable and i think we've all been subjected those of us on on the people we talk to around rcr a lot of us have been subjected to this sort of stuff mm. it's it's unacceptable uh, i dare say we live in hope that someone will say sorry one day but i suppose that is perhaps a tall order mm. but Yuck, you've been to you've been to hell like many others and uh hopefully you you yeah, you you still got a smile on your face, and that's the that's the the key thing. And um, you know, there's good people around you that will support you through it. But man, it's been tough, that's for sure. And um, you know, I I take my hat off to you for sort of opening up on on our show because not everyone's willing to do that. Not yeah. everyone's willing to do it. And uh, you know, drawing this to a close, I see um, on your Twitter feed or your X feed, you say. A Thomas Jefferson quote is, when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty. Mm. And I think that's what you and I and Jaspreet and others around us um, sort of feel. It's a really good quote. And so, Mark, can I, we just draw this to a close, but thank you for um, coming to us on the RCR feedback channel for us Mm. to find you. And um and we're very grateful for to to have had this chat and have uh, this is your life, Mark Holman. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you to both of you and to RCR for giving um, community to uh, the, those of us who have been estranged. But I, I sort of reflect upon. Uh, I think it's a quote attributable to Winston Churchill saying, "When you're going through hell, 
don't stop. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you so much. And listeners, Mark came through us at Don said through the feedback channels. 2057 is a number or inbox at the rate reality check touch radio. Goodbye. Just Preet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now.